The scientific revolution starts now. As a teenager, I feel like I was still quite naive. I don't know whether it was because of the way that uh, physics was being taught to me. But in uh, high school, I really always had this feeling that the theories that we were being taught to me were true, were a sort of reflection of reality. And um, that was actually the reason why I began to study uh, applied physics in university. Um, <clears throat> and in the first year, we had this topic, uh, philosophy and science where exactly the opposite was told to me, that you cannot understand the world through physics. Everything is an idealization. Um, you can never know for sure whether a theory is correct or not. And for me, that was um, quite, ha had a very big impact uh, on, on how I experienced the study from that moment onwards and also how I looked at science. And um, well, it certainly demotivated me in in, <laughs> in a, at least understanding the world because obviously you understand it's not possible. Um, and ultimately, my my dream of becoming a scientist or something like that, even an engineer, was uh, kind of destroyed. And I decided to become a teacher. So I was a teacher for one year after my university studies. Um, seemed to also not really be what I was searching for. And ultimately, I ended up a little bit by accident in, uh, again, Department of Applied Physics in my uh, home university in uh, Ghent. And yeah, from, from one thing came another. I ended up in this position of a teaching assistant where you also had to teach a little bit, but a part of the the position was also about doing research. And for me, that was really like secondary. I, I found it certainly interesting, but the topic was thrown in my lap. I, I, I didn't choose the topic at all. It was uh, plasmas in bubbles. Um, and also at that moment, no real purpose of the research was being told to me. It was, it was more like, okay, let's, let's do this research because the department has some uh, experience on it. Um, applications, we don't know. Applications will anyway come, you know. And that was a little bit the, the, the story that was told. And so I began this research, a little bit like a, you know, a side job in my teaching job, the way that I felt about it. But through time, during my uh, teaching assistantship or uh, PhD, uh, because it was both combined, to grow closer and closer to the research and um, I began to feel at the end of my PhD that something was wrong in uh, the way that science is typically performed because I, I began searching in the literature for things that I assumed to be there and found out I couldn't find it. Many, many fundamental questions were absolutely not answered and uh, in my field, okay, it's a niche field, but that in my field uh, of plasma-liquid interaction, um, these questions were still so standing. And also the discussions that I read in the, let's say, more recent uh, review papers, more recent uh, research articles, 
they didn't really satisfy my hunger for knowledge. They seemed to stop at a certain point that people decide like, okay, now, now we, we know enough, sort of. Okay, there, there are some questions lingering here and there, but it was as if the authors of these papers very often wanted to already stop the conversation after voicing kind of their opinion or just not going further into um into the details could you and could you I, give some examples of the kind of questions that you're talking about here <clears throat> to get more specific i was doing research on um plasma liquid interaction uh, of a of a single microfilament um how do you have to imagine it? It's like um, it's like a type of lightning, but a very soft type of lightning that you can uh, investigate on very small timescales uh, in the lab. And uh, this lightning is made not between a cloud and the Earth, as it's normally perceived in nature. It's being obviously generated in in the lab uh, through a certain electrode system, and the way that you would um, generate lightning would be with a pin to a plate electrode. So the the pin is more meant as as a sort of um, electric field enhancer. So you you know where the the lightning will be will be formed, and then the plate will be the uh, place where this this lightning will be uh, progressing towards. Now, um, the, the specific type of plasma that I was investigating was not pin to plate, but was kind of like a pin inside a glass tube to not a plate, but a water surface. And um, I saw something about in my research that I could not find anywhere else in the literature as I was searching. I, I, I saw that this was some kind of behavior that was unique to my setup, it seemed. And after searching for, I think a month it was, so somewhere in the third week of this month, I found one article which showed something similar, not with a water surface, but with something similar. And um, can you tell us the details of that, or, or is this still waiting to be published? It, it's, it's no, no, no. This is certainly already published. Um, it's um, how to say? Um, it, it's probably quite difficult to explain it without figures but what we were investigating was the time evolution of this lightning uh, on quite small time scales um so you can think of uh microseconds microseconds time scale and even shorter um but so on the microsecond time scale we saw that this little um occurrence of lightning was stretched over a way longer time than is normally the case um, in in the same setup with solid electrodes, mm. where you, so you, where you have this liquid electrode, mm. and um, yeah, and this, there just wasn't a, a theory available to capture why the liquid electrode had changed the dynamics in this way. I, I found out that it was actually <clears throat> not much talked about. So there was certainly some conversation going on about uh, plasmas in contact with liquids. But this specific occurrence of uh, this, this um, yeah, this, this plasma being stretched out through time, it seemed to be something that I perhaps was the first one to discover. 
I guess I, I, I haven't found anything like it in the literature, uh, at least before uh, that we published this uh, specific study. But during my search, I also began to understand um, that many gaps in knowledge about plasmas in contact with liquids are still standing. And um, yeah, it's not like there are a lot of people, maybe at the moment the, the field has evolved quite a bit uh, and, and you have more people looking into these things. But right at that point, I felt that this um, this was weird, that, that I was almost like the, the only person in the world thinking about these questions or at least publishing about them. Uh, so, And that's usually a really good sign when you're starting off on your scientific journey. When you when you come across some hole that you feel like you're, I mean, it's very lonely at first when you realize nobody else is looking at this and you don't have any. There's this weird thing that happens uh, when you go to grad school and when you start to study something and when you start to actually make progress on something that nobody else has, where at first you feel a little let down because nobody has the answers and you, and you kind of show up to these universities you know, we were, uh, I'll just speak for myself, like I was really excited to go to this really old university that had some really famous physicists. And I was thinking, oh, great, like all my questions will be answered. I can go talk to these people and they'll, they'll help me understand, you know, these basic ideas, how, you know, my, my confusion about space-time and plasmas and, uh, you know, everything, quantum mechanics. And it turned out to be at first, really heartbreaking to realize that nobody had the answers. But then that's also equally inspiring because you realize there's so much to be done. Yeah, I think um, the, the idea that there is no origi originality possible in the world anymore is really not true. Very often people have this idea. And I think especially um, if you don't know so much yet about a topic, like, oh, much has been discovered already in this thing. And what they're doing now in science is more like the leftovers. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's that's a very, very um, big misconception about science. Yeah, there's actually um, a nature paper that I, I, I don't know if it came out today or probably not today, it's a Saturday, but this week that looked at how people with intermediate level knowledge are the ones most prone to make the mistake that everything has been taken care of and that they, they have over, what do they call it? overestimated certainty about any particular discipline because they the, the effects i guess it was seemed related talking. to it but I, I think that they were looking at it in some new metric in particular how people perceive the certainty of scientific studies and so yeah it is essentially the dunning-kruger situation but i think that it was you know, studied in some new metrics. But published in nature. And published in nature, there you go. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if the original one was published in nature, but... Yeah. But so, you you said something interesting earlier, which is that you were frustrated by much of the physics because you felt like it didn't have a visceral, real-world application, where it was study of something that didn't seem like it had a lot of impact. It was more studying what was already being done at the university and kind of investigating these little crevices that needed attention. And so when it comes to long-lived plasmas at an electrode water interface, did you feel like there was something there that was relevant to the real world? Or was it still just a physical puzzle that was 
relevant just to the lab? Um, it, it's it's uh, it's many answers that I have to give here because um, there is not one one um, specific answer. First of all, this research that I'm talking about was published uh, many many years after um, <clears throat> that I started my PhD. So the field had even evolved already way, way uh, beyond uh, what I could see as a PhD student in the first year of my PhD. Um, but let me maybe start with the correction that I was not frustrated about this lack of uh, application to the thing that I was studying. Uh, I actually, kind of, for me, the applications were at that point, yeah, not necessary. I. I believed in this um, idea that you don't need to have an application to start working on something fundamental. As long as you have some, some arguments to make on why it can be important for the future, um, I think such science can already be very interesting to perform. I have to say that I evolved quite a bit uh, in that idea as well, because at the end of my PhD, um, my supervisor was asking me during my uh, defense, my PhD defense, uh, whether I, if I had a second PhD to make, whether I would go into something fundamental or application uh, related. And my answer was absolutely application related because my PhD evolved from fundamental towards more application related towards uh, water treatment, mm. um, the decomposition of pesticides. In in water, and um, to that sounds like really useful. Solution. It sounds very useful, but uh, of course there are all kind of um, hurdles to uh, overcome in this application, and certainly for for like uh, massive amounts of water, uh, it's it's too energy uh, inefficient for now, uh, and even. Apart from energy efficiency, there is also the problem of um, possibly toxic byproducts oh, no. that you might have with... Uh, yeah, so if, if the uh, decomposed um, pollutant is more toxic than the pollutant itself, you have a problem. <laughs> and, and that seems sometimes the case mm. with such uh, water treatment methods. Um, so for me... The, the, for me, it was absolutely not important to see the application in my lifetime. You know, if um, at this moment I would be working on um, the same topic again, um, I, I think it's also it's always worthwhile if you have this feeling like yes, one day people might uh, use my research uh, for real world applications, while never really knowing it for sure. It's it's always a guess. Research is always a guess, and I think as a researcher, you should always. Uh, be mentally prepared for having the possibility that your research will never be used. Can you enlighten me a bit about plasmas and liquid? Like, what does a, a plasma and a liquid even mean? What is a plasma, first of all? I mean, I understand that it's the separation of charge and so forth, but this is very schematic to me. Um, it's often called the fourth state of matter. Um, but we we have... We have ionization inside of liquids, too. Obviously, I mean, you have uh, tonic solutions that are conductive. But, yeah, what can you just teach me a little bit about liquid, like this idea of 
liquids and plasma? Is the plasma only in the gas phase outside the liquid and then the liquid is a tonic solution or is there something else going on there? Um, if, I, if I have to give the answer that most plasma physicists would give, um, it will be different from my interpretation of what a plasma is. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. We really, really need your help to keep the lights on here. Please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash demystifysci and consider giving just whatever you can, a couple of dollars a month. It will really help make sure that this project continues and continues to become a better project. By joining our Patreon, you also can come around on Sundays and join our face-to-face -face chats where we can hear from you about your ideas for what we should be doing on this show and how we can make it better. Otherwise, share it with somebody. One of the most important things for getting really good guests on this show is having that audience, having you guys. And so by growing the audience, we're actually able to access better and better guests for this show. Maybe there's some skill or talent that you also have. Maybe you're a great graphic designer. Maybe you know how to do 3D animations. Maybe you're really good with sound design. Whatever it is, reach out, come over to Discord, come over to Facebook, leave a comment down below. See if you can contribute in your own way to this project. And that is in some ways the best gift that you can give. Otherwise, block off your calendar for next April 6th and 7th. We're having our first Demystify Sci conference. And we'll see you there. Most plasma physicists would, ex and also in textbooks, um, everything that you typically read as an introduction to plasma physics, uh, starts with this notion of plasma is either an ionized gas or this fourth state of matter. Um, and the idea would be you start with a solid, let's say, for example, ice. You um, you, you add some energy in uh, to this, to this uh, state of matter in the form of heat, for example, you get a liquid. So that's the, you could say, st second state of matter. Then some more energy, you get a gas, the water vapor. And if you add even more um, energy, then at some point, this gas will become so hot that the particles will hit each other with uh, energies that can ionize um, the, um, the other particles. So you have ionization ultimately. And that's why in this sequence of events, uh, they would call plasma the fourth state of matter. Um, and then obviously the, the notion of an ionized gas, uh, it's, it's very easy to explain to um, elementary uh, students, let's say, like you have you have a gas, normally it's made for, uh, from neutral particles. Now we're going to assume that some of these particles have a charge, like ions and, and electrons, and voila, you have some kind of gas with some Coulomb forces um, playing a role, and we call it a plasma. And that's typically where the story ends. Um, but through my research uh, with, with plasma um, in liquids, plasmas in bubbles, uh, as well as uh, plasmas in contact with liquids, I began to um, read quite a lot of things in literature that were also aiming towards um, this definition being too narrow. That um, also, if, if, if you begin to look at discussions in the literature, some uh, physicists would say, like, no, you cannot really call it the fourth state of matter because the matter is glass or something like that, or the fourth state of matter is... Um, uh, there, are, there are some other uh, proposals for the fourth... As you already, you already see, it's, it's quite subjective to call it the fourth state of matter. Um, then 
Secondly, this ionized gas. Yeah, this is this is something that I came into my research to think about that it doesn't have to be a gas. Mm. You can have um, lightning formation inside liquids. So um, more general, uh, it, it, people call it plasma generation in the liquid phase. Uh, you can induce this by lasers, by means of lasers, or by means of uh, some some submerged um, electrode system. And there is a theory, or there is a mechanism that has been proposed already one century ago, that assumes that the ionization happens, so the, the, the onset of this uh, plasma formation, uh, that the, the very, very beginning happens in the liquid phase. So you don't need a gas to go to this fourth state of matter. So why would you call it a fourth state if you don't need the gas phase? Mm. But that's, of course, a theory. Um, and then you can begin to uh, discuss, like, is it really true? Is it um, not first a bubble which is being formed? But so these were uh, two competing mechanisms already from the, the beginning of times when, when this topic was being investigated, the plasma formation in the liquid phase. You had these two competing mechanisms. The one was called the the bubble mechanism of plasma formation in the liquid phase. The other one was called the electronic mechanism. And um, they began to live their own life a bit and evolve. And, and you have some different types of bubble mechanisms. Uh, so you, some of them, uh, for example, rely on a pre-existing micro bubble. Others rely on um, a bubble formation. But so already by the time that I was finishing my PhD, um, it was clear, there was some research that showed that plasma could be generated in the liquid phase without really the possibility of a real bubble being formed. Oh, that's really because interesting. Bubble, yeah, so they, they had done an experiment uh, in the sub-nanosecond uh, volt voltage pulses where um, they saw that in the nanosecond time scale, uh, the plasma was being formed. You, they could see it on a camera, on a fast camera. And um, this is not possible with a uh, normal, let's say, normal pterodyne of bubble formation, uh, because that requires typically something like 10 nano, uh, microseconds at least. Because so the bubble has to organize that interface and so forth? You, yeah, you need. You need um, you need some process to have the phase transition. Uh, so how does this bubble uh, get formed? That's the first question. Uh, typically, it's some heating process. So you can have some, some Euler heating in the liquid phase. Maybe it's some electrochemistry. Maybe it's uh, some, some pre-existing bubble that you don't see. And then it, it um, has some electrostatic expansion of some kind. But you need some time to have these processes work out so you can see them. And um, according to the, the calculations, yeah, the 10 uh, microseconds uh, were, were the minimum time scale that you needed for having this uh, bubble being formed. And then if you already introduced a micro uh, bubble um, at the place where you would expect the plasma being formed, then you can only reduce this time to the microsecond time scale. So only one order of magnitude less, but still, three orders of magnitude uh, from what they saw in the other experiment of nanosecond timescale. Mm. So this cannot explain why um, 
the, the, the plasma is formed so quickly in the liquid phase. Can, so, can I pause you for a second? I'm, I'm still trying to understand a couple of things about the experimental setup. Is it deionized water? I think it was. Okay, I think it okay. was um, as pure as you uh, can imagine it in the lab. So the uh, only of chance of conductivity is through some sort of plasma formation. Um, well, let's say it, it, there is no doubt that there was uh, being formed because uh, they saw density changes. This um, they, they also measured shock waves in uh, similar experiments. Mm. Uh, it's, so it's, it's very, visualizable. Very yeah, yeah, it's visualizable, uh, not simply through very complicated means. You can just put a camera on it, fast oh, cool. camera, but you, you actually see light coming from this uh, from this plasma. So certainly something um, something is exciting species there. Um, so yeah, to imagine uh, the the setup, it's still this pin to plate a kind of setup. So you have one pin which is typically the high voltage electrode, and then you have a plate which is very often uh, considered to be the uh, grounded electrode, but you can also say the, the surrounding liquid is uh, grounded in this way. And um, yeah, you, you might have different voltage waveforms that they apply uh, to generate this plasma, but very often in these kind of experiments is a pulsed plasma, pulsed high voltage. So you know when the, when the pulse arrives on the pin and you uh, then also uh, know when the plasma is uh, ultimately generated after this uh, onset of the pulse. Uh, and so nanosecond time scale is really very short in that sense. Um, and yeah, this, this made me actually realize that um, in the literature, even when you have very clear opposite IDs, opposite mechanisms that are being proposed in the literature, Scientists very often formulate already their opinion about what is possible and what is not. And I found it so weird that this experiment was, you know, quite established. Um, and, and still you could see in literature um, formulations in the trend of, yeah, the, the electronic mechanism cannot be because, and then some theoretical explanation. While you can see it in the experiment ultimately. Okay, I can I can understand when, when people were saying this before the experiment was done, but then even when the experiment was done, you, you, there seems to be a, a similar narrative that uh, people said like, yeah, but if you, if you have this very dense state of a liquid, then electrons cannot be, um, cannot be accelerated uh, fast enough to, to create ionization, so an electron avalanche like you would have in the gas phase. And very similar uh, kind of theoretical explanations would be given why it would not be possible. And, and, and yet I guess it was. I approach... And yet it was apparent. Yeah, so, and, and yet it, it was. And so I think I, I approach science in a different way than most people, because for me, the experiment is first. And explanations should always be taken with a grain of salt. They're always made in a, in a certain scientific background. You, you, you rely on all kinds of theories. You rely on all kinds of very often uh, analogies that you make with, with what you know uh, in other contexts. So, for example, a lightning in nature, you compare it with a lightning underwater. 
uh, analogies, not necessarily this one, but uh, people typically rely on this kind of analogies to explain something. But I think it's very important to make as many analogies that you can, making competing theories that you um, do not choose a side from the start. And I, yeah, I've seen it many times in the literature that it seems before something has been discovered, scientists seem so sure of themselves that something cannot be. While I find this a very, very hard claim to say like, oh, it's not possible that this occurs. And sometimes it's it's formulated in a in a way that you could say like okay that they're actually correct, um, but also very confusing for let's say the student who is reading this text for example. Um, if you say like thermodynamically this is not possible, that's a very different sound uh, to the sentence than if you say according to classical thermodynamics. This is not possible. This is not um, able to be explained. The second, the second type has has a more uh, conditional sense to it. It has, it has more oh. of an enticement. It's an invitation. Classical kind thermodynamics says that it cannot be, and yet it is. And so, what what next? As opposed to the sentence that says it's impossible. End of story. Indeed. And so this reminds me also very much to something very related, by the way, to this research that I was doing on um, plasmas uh, in, in bubbles and, and plasmas in uh, plasma generation in the liquid phase. Um, you have a concept in science uh, called nanobubbles. And basically, these are defined as bubbles smaller than a micrometer. So a little bit different scale than typically for nanoparticles, because nanoparticles are very often up to, let's say, 100 nanometer scale. Uh, but so nanobubbles typically go until micrometer scale um, or up to, up to uh, one micrometer. According to thermodynamics, nanobubbles are not possible. The classical thermodynamics, they don't allow it. They, they say that the bubble should have such a, such a strong surface tension that is um, at such a small scale with such a small diameter it would just collapse. Mm. The gas would dissolve um, very quickly into the into the liquid phase. So, yeah, many physicists were of the opinion that these nanobubbles could not exist until they were discovered. And then you can again <laughs> begin to ask, like, does it make sense even uh, to use such theoretical arguments that something cannot be? something cannot exist feel that it, it's a way healthier approach that assume you're wrong and um be open for the alternative who then can of course uh, work with probabilities like how likely is it that you're wrong or not but there is such a vast space of things that you don't know that it sounds kind of arrogant to me to, to take a position a priori before things have been investigated in a good way. And so, for example, with nanobubbles, um, in, in 1982, I think, the first nanobubbles were being reported in the literature, um, was probably at that time quite controversial. Uh, and then 
it was not certain yet until 2014, 2015, that these nanoparticles that they saw contained gas. And so that's that's a very, very short timescale in science. Only like uh, almost 10 years ago, it's, it's, it's even shorter than 10 years ago, um, it was being established in science that nanopart- uh, nanobubbles could exist. Uh, that they were reported that they that you have uh, bubbles with with sub uh, micrometer size that are stable, and they're not just stable; they're stable for days. They're more stable than micro bubbles. Hmm. So it, it's completely the opposite of what scientists thought, ultimately. And so, when we're talking about plasmas in liquids and the way that they're used to be a necessity for having a gas phase in order to produce the plasma. Do you think that the nanobubbles are present in the liquid and that's what's conducting the plasma? Or do you think that that is a completely different mechanism? Um, They can play a role. And that's what I was um, proposing in in one of my publications. Uh, So in 2018, I wrote this review paper where I was exploring all kinds of alternative ideas in the literature. Um, and, and, and basically, the uh, strategy that I used was looking at all the neighboring fields that I could think of uh, that could be relevant for this concept of plasma generation in liquid phase, for example, and then uh, secondly, also plasmas in contact with liquids. And um, I came to this topic of nanobubbles. I was not even specifically searching for um, for for nanobubbles per se, uh, or, or maybe I was. Maybe um, I, I just had uh, this, this. Let's search for microbubbles in the literature and see whether I can link something of this knowledge to uh, the plasma formation. And then let's see what they say about nanobubbles. That's thermodynamic theory. Uh, would would not allow them, and then seeing like, oh, actually, there is quite some interesting research on this, and then immediately, um, I, I began to realize that no one in the field um, of of plasma generation in the liquid phase was ever talking about this. There were even scientists who wrote in their um, entire publication that nanobubbles could not exist, so they do not have to be considered, mm. and they published it. I think when nanobubbles were already proven to exist. So I was like, okay, this is a nice opportunity to talk about it. Um, So, yeah, this uh, made me again realize like how little uh, is typically being investigated in in the literature compared to what you might think. Um, Well, I think that literature reviews are really, really difficult. And so if there's somebody who is, you know, 10 departments away studying nanobubbles and you are studying plasmas in liquids, there's a lot of intervening steps that have to happen before you as the plasma in liquid guy are connected to the nanobubbles guy. And I think that people get... There's not a ton of time for really deep literature searches in a lot of conditions, and I think that this is a search that's, problem. That's that's I think um, a very good point, and that's also the conclusion that I came to. That uh, science is progressing in such a way, it's structured in such a way that most people simply don't have time to search for, or don't are not motivated even to do such literature studies. 
But to say that that it's, I think that it's expensive in terms of time and resources in a way that is not rewarded, right? So if you can publish something and have a publication at the uh, in in a year versus take, you know, three months to do a literature search, discover that there's this new framework that you have to be thinking about, figure out how to include that experimental setup in what you're doing, because I imagine that being able to tell if there's nanobubbles in your liquids is quite difficult. It doesn't seem like you can just look at it and say, you know, nanobubbles present. So there's all these extra infrastructural things that you have to build out in order to be able to include that in your work, or you have to start collaborating with somebody who's far away, and then you're including the fact that they have this crazy schedule and they're difficult to work with, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it suddenly becomes a problem where it's just much, much easier to say, you know what? We have a system. It works. We're going to publish what we have, and we're going to keep moving because the goal of the entire project is to just publish as frequently as possible in the highest impact journal possible, as opposed to actually really spend years trying to answer a question and then answer and then publish at the end of that like it's just it's the 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 incentives are not there for people to do this kind of work i think and so it's hard for me to go ahead I certainly agree on um, the the practical side that the incentive is not there to work on it practically, but to at least talk about it. Mm. And that's not being done. And that's what surprises me most because you you can say that from one side, making a literature review is difficult, is, is a hard job um from from a certain point of view but it really really depends on what kind of um literature study you're doing the way that i'm doing it is um or that i was doing it in my previous reviews that i've uh, have published it's typically looking at the part of physics the part of the field that other scientists in my field are not looking at this is quite hard if you don't have a good overview of the field, but it becomes very easy once you have it. And, you know, it, it's what I discovered is uh, that this is actually a very, very um, easy thing to do once you know how to do it. But indeed, to um, motivate scientists to actually work on these things, to actually spend their money on these things, um, and especially in terms of um, experimental setups, um, can require quite a long time. You you need some good arguments, but I think the arguments are there. Uh, So why not do it once you see it in the literature? It's just that there is this, this... yeah, there's this culture in science that um, people typically don't work that way. They don't go to read review papers uh, once they are published and then say, like, okay, this what this thing is the first thing on our list or the second thing or the, the third thing on our list right now because that's a good idea. No, they, they typically get some setup, maybe inherit some setup uh, from somewhere uh, and then begin to think like, what can we do with this? Mm. And very often they will first like to try their own ideas before they will look into the literature, which questions have been asked. That's that's one scenario. Another scenario is that um, this is the way that, that research is typically funded. Eh? Um, you propose what you already uh, know that you will discover. It, it, it's like, 
I, I still cannot grab this this concept of um, research proposals where you predict what you will do. If you look back to, let's say, previous century, um, one, 100 years ago, how people were discovering new things. The biggest discoveries of the previous century, how were they made? Were they made by people saying like, okay, you know, I need some money for something that I will discover now. I will explain you what I will discover um, and, and how I will do the research. And um, then if this goes wrong and that goes wrong, I have this plan to mitigate it. No, no one was doing it like that. Most of these uh, big breakthroughs were by accident. Well, like from a funding and, perspective, it makes a lot of sense, right? If I'm sitting on a big pile of money, I'm like, I want to put my money on on things that are sure bets, right? And I feel like all of the most venerable forefathers of science, foremothers too, they're able to self-fund their research. They're like wealthy barons and well-established aristocrats. Or in the case of guys like Hooke or Huygens, right? They they have some other profession. They're doctors or lawyers or something else. And so they're not like the idea of scientist as career is pretty modern. Well, I I've been thinking about this in in terms specifically of electricity. You're right that the the idea of scientist as career inside of an academic structure is really modern. But I was thinking about Francis Hauksbee, who was one of the first pioneers of linking the idea that light and electricity are a similar phenomenon. And Hauksbee began, I think, as a manufacturer of vacuum tubes. And then he realized that he could get light to come out of these tubes. And then he realized that people really liked to look at it. And so basically funded his research through building these apparatus that could be used for fancy demonstrations that people liked to look at. Like he even at some point ended up at Buckingham Palace trying to demonstrate to the queen his, you know, his devices for generating light from there was uh they would they would pull a vacuum and then they would pour mercury through the vacuum tube and it would cause it to to fall in a shower of sparks and it was very dramatic and he actually failed to do it in front of the queen of England because it was a really wet day and the humidity interfered with the experiment but the goal was to wow the queen in order to get support for the research and so this is old stuff people have been doing this for a very long time and what we've done is we've made it a little bit bureaucratic it's just bureaucratic now it's a bigger system right you don't go to the queen's house and are like look at my device you now write a you write a grant proposal and then some bureaucrat sitting in a windowless room decides whether or not they're going to give it to you and so it feels very soulless and heartless but i think that the competition and the marketplace of ideas is an old is an old principle i think yes and no because um Nowadays, you, you have many more possibilities than uh, 100 years, 200 years ago in terms of science. But you also have the limitation that there are so many scientists mm. all competing for the same batch of money. And this makes it a different kind of game. Uh, and, and it's certainly true that uh, the, the way that money uh, is flowing now probably has some similarities with how it was um, uh, one or two centuries ago, but at the same time, I, I think it's it's uh, now you have so many more possibilities. Countries 
Governments can decide how much of money they, they spend on research. They can even basically decide how they are going to spend it. Um, and it's a lot of money compared to if you look uh, one, one century or two centuries ago. It's really a lot of money. Mm. Um, so there are so many more uh, options to make, so many more choices to make. So you can also diversify in these choices. And I feel there is not enough of diversification there. So what you, for example, can compare is uh, how people were performing science in the Soviet Union um, during communistic times and how people were performing science during the same period in the West, where you had capitalism um, thriving. You see very different approaches in how money was spent uh, in these two situations. Namely, in the West, um, very similar to how it is nowadays, you had to convince people about your research to give you money. While in the Soviet Union, you didn't have to care so much about all of these things because there was no money. People were just uh, put into a position uh, of a professorship with the promise that they could remain professor for the rest of their lives. Maybe not with so much of a salary, but with the certainty at least that they didn't have to constantly compete for money. Um, and But your security was dependent in that system upon making sure that your ideas didn't cross what was fashionable in the upper echelons of the communist party like if you look at something like lysenkoism you had people who were advocating for the limitations of heritability and for a more i would say probably correct version of genetics and they were sent to the gulags and lysenko had science that was theoretically aligned with the spirit of the Soviet Union, which is that you could remake an organism in your own vision. And so he was very popular because Stalin loved the idea that Lysenko was offering. And so, sure, you had a professorship in the Soviet Union that you could occupy for as long as you wanted, but you just had to make sure that the ideas that you were pumping out into the world were, were amenable to the ideals of the Communist Party and not antagonistic to them. Yes, but in a certain sense, uh, isn't the situation in the West similar that you still have to appease some people and, okay, it's maybe a little bit more democratic system. Fewer gulags. <laughs> Fewer gulags, <laughs> but um, the word pseudoscientist is also thrown around quite quickly. Oh, yeah, so yeah, if, you yeah, have, yeah. if you have a weird ID, you have to be careful even in the West. Uh, and and certainly, um, I, I'm not certainly not advocating for um, pure communism in science. Uh, but I feel like if if you look at what scientists in the Soviet Union were able to produce, so obviously there were some limitations, but some some things were perfectly fine to to publish without having um, the the people higher in hierarchy uh, at your neck. There were some discoveries being done in the Soviet Union that people in the West, scientists in the West, were absolutely um, baffled by. They, they, they didn't know how, um, how it worked, but it worked. So that's something that apparently um, was, was, was happening during Soviet Union times. And I think partly, of course, because these parts of the world were isolated and you cannot just expect that um, in such a situation 
um, two parts of the world will produce exactly the same scientific results. But I think partly also because the communistic system certainly has some advantages also to it. Um, advantages that the capitalistic system does not have. And so one of them, for example, is if you look at statistics in nowadays in uh, the West on how much time a typical researcher is spending, and let's say a typical postdoctoral researcher is spending on trying to attract money, trying to attract funding. It's massive. It's a quarter of the time. That's a lot of money that you have to spend on attracting money. And to me, it doesn't feel very efficient. It would be way more efficient if it would only be 5% of the time, or even 1% of the time, or let's say that it's 0% of the time. This researcher, this same researcher would be so much more productive. And how would you be, how would you be selective in that kind of a climate? How would you establish competition amongst scientists? Like, you know, there's only so many positions in the best labs. Like, how would you? And there's only so much money ultimately to go around. So, mm. not everybody's project can be funded. How do you decide that? It's it's certainly not an easy question. But uh, one thing that I feel is that this this communistic system in science is largely lacking in the West. You don't have too many scientists uh, which can just do science without thinking about uh, attracting money. In, in Belgium, for example, such a job does not exist. You don't have a permanent researcher position in, um, in academics. You don't have it. Maybe you have it somewhere out of academics. Like there's no tenure track positions? Well, let's say um, if you're if you're becoming a professor, obviously tenure track uh, and, and and having a fixed position uh, is there. But you will, by default, almost never do one hundred percent research. Mm. You will be more of a manager in your job. And I'm certainly not saying that all of the professorships are the same. And especially there are some differences also be between countries. So, for example, in France, you you do have some of these permanent uh, 100% researcher positions. But in Belgium, it's it's almost not possible to get such a, such a position. You're either in a situation where you don't know where you will be in some of the next years because you don't have a fixed position, or you're in a position that you have a fixed position, but you cannot do 100% uh, research. And very often, there is a part um, education uh, with it, but it doesn't have to be only education. It can also be... Uh, a lot of administrative job, uh, a lot of um, networking. But uh, this is something you very often hear of uh, tenure-tracked uh, professors in, in, in Belgium and certainly also in other countries, that they don't have any time anymore or almost no time anymore for doing actually research. They are more managing people for doing research. Mm. So this is a problem. Why? Because the way that... And I, I think this is quite uh, generalizable to, towards the entire Western system. The way that science is now working is that you typically have uh, students which, which um, get their diploma of master's, end up in a PhD, and are trained uh, in, in becoming scientists up to the point where they get the message basically like, okay, now it's up to you whether you, you can stay in this field or not. There, there, there is so much of competition after the PhD level. There's so much of competition that um, only 10% can remain. 
there are way too many PhD students to populate um, all the the all the positions higher in the hierarchy, so postdoc positions, professor positions. So 90% of them need to disappear from academics. They need to go towards governmental jobs or industry. I think so, that, that has a lot to do with the way that PhD students are basically cheap labor for professors. And so a professor sure. that has a laboratory wants to maximize the number of PhDs that they have because it allows them to produce more work because each one of those students is basically working on a little piece of their legacy. And so the incentives of the PhD student are actually not aligned with the incentives of the tenured professor because the professor wants to use you for as long as possible and then doesn't really want to be in competition with you later. And I don't I don't think that it's that bare of of a contrast. I don't think that anybody's actually sitting there thinking of I want to exploit my students, but it's just kind of inherently what happens and this is why you have you have this just gripe in in graduate school where the students feel like they are treated like workers rather than as independent researchers. And so in the United States, they're trying to unionize and they're trying to organize. And the professors at the departments are kind of like, well, what are you doing? You, this, is, this is an ideal position of free inquiry. You're not workers. You're free researchers. I want to add that I had a very different experience in grad school. And in that my advisor did not treat me like a worker and actually treated me like a baby scientist who needed to learn how to do science, essentially. But what's fascinating about that is that it didn't work out for most of the people in my lab. In other words, most of the people in my lab expected to be workers and expected someone to tell them what to do. And our advisor was the kind of guy who literally wouldn't, if you didn't show up to lab, if you just didn't even come and do any work, he wouldn't bother you. I mean, he will, he will eventually say he doesn't have any funding for you, but he's not going to be like following you up and asking you how your experiments are going and I mean, he did ask how your experiments are going, if he saw you in the hall or something, but he's not going to schedule meetings and micromanage you like a boss. And that was, it's interesting to have seen how that was in some sense perpetuated by the grad students themselves too, because they expected that. The, the Western education system coming up through college, maybe through master's, they'd come to expect that someone would tell them what to do. And so it's not just the professors is all I'm saying. There's, there's an element of the students that expect this kind of system. For sure, for sure. And um, I think you certainly have to differentiate here between different students. But one thing that I can say uh, out of experience is that uh, as a PhD student, you can end up in a situation where uh, things are decided um, that, that do not fit you. And I'm, I'm not saying necessarily my, my own personal experience uh, in, in my PhD, because um, I, I, can, I can certainly attest that my experience in science was overall very, very good. I think I always was very lucky to end up in, in uh, very good uh, research groups, certainly uh, in terms of atmosphere and how much of freedom they gave me. But I've heard so many stories of the opposite. And um, I feel like, obviously, being a professor, being being a research group head is not an easy task to do, but it's a very important one. And if you do not succeed in um, adapting to your students, adapting to your PhD students, then 
you will automatically fail, I think. So I, I guess that differentiation is here a very important um, factor that you need to, um, yeah, kind of probe with each um, individual what kind of role they want to play in your team. And you can have this with a just normal conversation. You can even ask them, like, do you want to be given tasks and execute tasks? Or do you want to be creative in your job and really think uh, work on your own ideas? Um, you will very soon find out what, what the preferences are. And also, of course, you will need to, need to take into account that this can change over time because that's basically what happened to, uh, with me during my uh, research career, that I started as an executor and uh, I began to rather quickly become uh, quite independent in my own ideas. And I think um, certainly now we're talking here about problems in science. Certainly the problem is not only at the level of um, the, the, the professorship um, or even isolated towards professorship and, and PhD students. It is institutional. I, I really think uh, there are some problems that can be solved um on an institutional level um but also are not so easy to solve because of the historical backgrounds that academ academia has so what, what happens now in the west is you have this problem with phd students that they only have typically four years to do their research then they come in this situation where they have to decide do i stay in academia or not uh, and they will also typically uh, get confronted immediately with how much of competition there is um, and if they're lucky, they can stay in academics. If they're not, um, then they might have a very hard time uh, finding an alternative until they decide, like, okay, I'm going out of academics. Um, I'm, I'm going for the easier route, if, if that is indeed an easier route for them. Um, then you get to the postdoctoral level. What's happening there is that you're at a stage where you're certainly more capable to do research on your own because you don't have this um, beginning experience that you need as a PhD student. A student. Uh, you can immediately get into these things. But very often, postdoctoral researchers, they have positions of two years, one year, things in, in, in that trend. Typically also not necessarily related to their PhD work. So they again need to uh, process all kind of new uh, knowledge. And they typically spend a lot of time on attracting uh, funding in science. So they also don't have so much of time to do research. They also need to guide PhD students. So they get already closer to this professor position where they're more like managers and less of researchers. And then you get into ultimately this professorship um, environment where you have the more extreme of these cases. And obviously that's no one's fault. Um, the professor cannot decide like, oh, I will now decide to have more time for research. Very often these, these um, limitations uh, are, are on institutional level that you cannot uh, so much decide about it as a professor you know, and comes with it. Yes. It's really interesting <laughs> because Shiloh and I, at some point we were in the woods and I don't remember exactly what precipitated this, but Shiloh turns to me and he kind of has this really worried look on his face and he's like, what if science is supposed to be a hobby? 
And what we've done is we've built this enormous edifice for funding and structure and building progressively more and more expensive equipment that allows you to look at progressively smaller and smaller and more difficult to see things. But what if the practice of science... And by science, we just mean that basic understanding of nature, right? The mechanistic understanding. I mean, I think that they're like... I can't pump up my, my advisor was just an amazing, he is an amazing man. And he had just, he'd solved a lot of these problems. And I, I did see so much pain in the rest of my fellow cohort, people in other labs that they were operating as you as you say. But one thing that he also figured out was that if he had an engineering project alongside all of these different scientific investigations, he wouldn't have to really justify the scientific investigations because he could get funding for the promising, you know, and of course, funders, you can promise them the moon with engineering projects. Like we had a, a DARPA grant, we were studying these evaporation harvesting engines. You know, we knew in the back of our heads, like, there's no way they're going to use this stuff, but they're happy to, they have tons of money and they'll throw it at it. So there's a lot of funding for engineering projects. And so, like, especially when I first joined the lab, I was... Like you said, you have to learn the tools of the trade. You got to learn the system. You have to learn how to do all of the things that are available to you in that new discipline. And so working on an engineering project was really good for teaching me a lot of those skills. But at the same time, I had a good portion of my time to just play with what's what are the scientific threads that are loose here that we don't understand. And I think that that was like a particularly brilliant situation because <clears throat> you open up the 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 place for play for really just ex exploration. I think that's what I meant, Anastasia, by it wouldn't it be nice if science was a hobby is like, it's not the idea of exploring nature is not really cut out for in, being industrialized. The implementation is the engineering, right, is in technology is definitely cut out for industry, but there needs to be a place for that play and discovery and exploration that isn't really pegged to being rewarded ahead of time. And so I, I think there is a more functional version of the academy in the west and i think that i experienced it personally but almost nobody does and so i'm always i never want to get miss the opportunity to at least relate my experience and how it was in some sense addressing these fractures nastia had the opposite experience no no, no i don't i'm not that's not what i'm even thinking of i think that just basic research is a different beast i'm just thinking about how you're the lab that you were in has kind of fizzled a little bit. Well, that's what I mean. It was a disaster for most of the students, <laughs> yeah. right? That's that's not that kind of freedom is not something that students in the West are trained for. Ultimately, maybe, maybe the, that's it. But I also think that it's I, when when you say that you know science is best as a hobby. I have this feeling where we talked to Richard Lindzen a couple of weeks ago. Do you know who Richard Lindzen is? He's like a he's he's a climate scientist. He was at MIT. He was at Harvard. He was at the Cato Institute, and he is a very he's a theorist who basically is like, look, I think that the current fears about CO two are pretty overblown, and we're we're barking up the wrong tree. And he's never been able to get grants. He's never been able to really run a big laboratory, but he's work he's in his sixties, maybe seventies, and he's worked his entire life. And when you ask him how he's managed it, he just shrugs and is like, I, I, I don't need a lot of money. 
I manage to do the work that I do without having to spend a quarter of my time on getting grants. And I think that that's possible for something like theoretical climate modeling. But I'm not sure that that's the case for experimenting with plasma. Right? Like, how hard is it to build a garage apparatus to do the kind of work that you do without having a big grant? It is quite possible, actually. Okay. Um, but you need to be creative. You need to be a hands-on person. Uh, but I know some researchers like that who were very, very, very good at um, building um, an apparatus out of nothing, with no budget, basically, um, something that you could use for basic research. And I would even say that there is still room. You have to really search um, and, and, and be lucky to find such topics. But there are topics where you don't need a very complicated setup to create a plasma or to create something um, related to, to plasmas uh, to do basic research that has not been done before. So there certainly is a possibility to, um, and I think quite like in every field, uh, to do research with um, few money. The only question is how few. Mm. And um, I can imagine if you want to do some some medical experiments where you really need very pure setups and all these things, uh, yeah. You have to be realistic on uh, who's paying, how much is being paid for just doing some some blue sky research. Um, but if a lab has money, basically, there you have the possibility. The I, I, I think you mentioned something very important there. So the difference between uh, fundamental science and the let's say more industrial science or the the more uh, apl application type of science, um, they are very different in this case. And when I said application-related science, I'm very convinced that the capitalistic system there works quite well because mm -hmm. it has been proven to work quite well. It's maybe not the only way that should be um, that it should be organized, but the way that money is flowing there with competition seems to work. But ultimately, yeah, if you make something capitalistic you also give it a different motivation than if you make something communistic. So for example, if you look at, uh, let's say, um, medicine from the previous century, very chemically based, um, very, um, yeah, very much based on this principle of let's make some, some medicine that we can earn money with. Mm. It is not based on the idea of healing people. You know what I mean? It's it's like a different motivation. Oh yeah. So I mean we've, certainly, we've seen that play out heavily in the last few years. Yeah, so the the thing is there like are you going to to decide that the capitalistic system is the only good one here? Uh, I'm certainly not wanting to go in that direction, but it certainly works to a certain extent. It's just yeah, you you might need to fine tune um the the way that things are going there with the communistic system so if you just give money go ahead go ahead finish with that if you just give money so so um what i would say is that the ideal setup that i would see as quite easily reachable um while not necessarily the best solution but it is a solution is what companies are already doing uh right now the, the bigger types of companies 
they are doing something that is not so easily done in academics yet, uh, where they just give people um, that they're workers 10% of their time that they can do whatever they want. That they can that they can play around with the setups that are given, uh, the tools that they're given. Uh, so that's where the hobby factor can play a role. That's actually 10% of communism in a capitalistic system. And in this way, you can you can mix the two. And I think that's a very, very useful thing. But at the same time, diversification to me is, is always a very good idea. So why not try to implement uh, both systems in, in many degrees? So for one person, for example, who really loves um, fundamental science, that this person has the option to have a 100% fundamental um, uh, science research position, while another person who wants to be completely on the applications, that this person can also decide, like, okay, I don't need this 10% extra playing around time. I really want to work on the applications. I think this type of diversification can also be very, very useful because you will not reach the same... Um, the same results with 10% of your time spending on fundamental research as you can with way more. And that, there is, I think, a second um, practical thing that plays a role. Someone who was able to spend 100% of his or her time on uh, one topic has way more possibility to go very deep into this topic. Not simply because this person has more time, because but because this person has more flow. Mm. And yeah, is, definitely. Well, when your time is broken up into little pieces and you're picking at something here and then you're picking at something there and then you have all these responsibilities, like it just prevents you from being able to think deeply on a question. And I think that that luxury of deep and uninterrupted thought where you're able to just hold yourself up and not worry about meetings and requirements is important for being able to have transformative ideas. But we don't have a world where, like you say, that's really possible. And so pushing towards it, I think, is probably going to help us come up with more disruptive ideas because... I mean, there's a there's an easy place for it in that if you come into a lab... There, it it makes a lot of sense to take a new student and put them on a project that's kind of almost done already, right? Maybe they'll be like fourth, fifth, sixth author on the paper or something, but they can spend a little bit of time right with it, but they don't have a lot of responsibility with it at the same time. That gives them a huge portion of their time to explore their own ideas in the background, right? Because maybe they're only expected to do 10% of their work on that project, but they're still gaining valuable insight into how the work is done at the same time. And the other thing is, like, this applies to everything in the world, right? I mean, this is one of the biggest... Look, like, I was... Uh, I set out in the world to be an artist, right? I wanted to do music, uh, primarily when I started out. And one of the things I encountered over and over again is that there's a real painful schism in the art world because... The idea of selling out and getting money is is really anathema to the process of making really good art. And so people that are concerned at all with making money are, con are often considered as sellouts and kind of pushed out of the cool crowd in art, right? But at the same time, that's, that's a really destructive mindset to have because ultimately you do have to survive and you do have to have your art have an audience. Right? If you don't have an audience, 
you know, it might be Zen and meditative, but you're not really doing the job of an artist, which is to inspire people. So it's a terrible negotiation for people to make sense of it in any profession, because on one hand, you have to pay the bills. And on the other hand, you want to do what you love to do. And those two things can often come into conflict in our, our modern motivational structure. But I think that this is what I, what I took you to mean when you said, should science be a hobby, which is that it's something that somebody does not because they want to make money off of it. It's not because they want to win a Nobel Prize. It's not because they want to change the world. It's literally, they're just curious people that are focused on something. And it's hard. It's, it's almost impossible for me to imagine a world where that is the vast majority of scientists. Because it's just not how people work. You live in a world right now where, okay, if you want to do something, you do it full time, you commit yourself to it, and that is the way that you get insights. And so in order to commit yourself full time to it, the vision is that you have to progressively make more money in order to be able to support yourself. But you could also go down in the opposite direction. You can say, you know, how little do I need? What is the most that I can whittle everything down to so that I have this almost monastic life, but the monastic life allows me to devote myself fully to this thing that I'm curious about? And I think that most people don't want to be monks. I think most people want to be able to live a normal life where they can go out and get beers with their friends and do their thing. But I was, I've been reading some of Einstein's letters to his friend Solveig. And in those letters, he talks about their youth in Bern and how they would, they were poor and they were hungry, but they would get together and they would eat, you know, a sausage and a crust of bread and talk late into the night about the philosophical and historical books that they were reading. Sometimes Einstein would play the fiddle, they would like go walk around town. But that's, that was the intellectual life that he, for the rest of his life, was like, do you remember those days? where we were free to think. And if Einstein, the person that is at the top of the universe, the one that everyone to this day is like, this is the greatest scientist that ever lived, is still wistfully thinking of those days of freedom where he needed very little, he had very little, but he had the time to think about the questions. To me, that suggests that that place of monastic thought is the only possible place where you can you can hang for a long period of time without being corrupted by the influences of the world, and the rest of it and is yet just. Einstein took dressing. a job at the patent office because he he didn't want to be completely. He involved. was working at the patent office then. Okay, so he had a job. He had a job, but it was like the the whole point I think with the patent office job was that he was able to think all day long because it was like a very easy job. Right, and that's that's the real trick for for artists and for scientists. I feel like is finding that job that right. It, maybe if if it's an engineering project or whatever it is, something that's industrial that you're going to get paid for, so that but it also doesn't sap your energy and time, so that you can do your work. That's the thing, because like if you work at a company that gives you ten percent of your time, but the ninety percent of your time that you spend is is so intense that you don't have the enthusiasm or the energy for it. Are they really giving you 10% of your time? Because it's not like that's the first 10% of your time that you spend. It's the last 10% of the time. It's like after you've done everything else, go ahead. You can play around a little bit. Right? I've been in those 10% labs too. It's just that's not, that doesn't work. It's very difficult to pursue something with 10% of a 40-hour work week. Yeah. 
So I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, m- monastic life, I think, is maybe the answer. <laughs> I think there is a there is a very big truth in that because uh, if you look in history to uh, most of the most important theories in science that have been developed, uh, very often you will you will find that they have been developed during times where the developers had so much of time on their hands. So, uh, for example, with Newton, he developed his Principi um, when he was forced to stay at home because there was the plague, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, running around. So, you know, what what else did he have to do? <laughs> he, he was just uh, having all time that he needed for thinking about things. And the same with Einstein. And the same with, I think, many, many other researchers that uh, had this big breakthroughs, this big um, change in thought about something. Very often they were playing around because they didn't have anything else to do. Of course, it also takes some discipline. It's not just having the situation where you have massive amount of time and uh, you don't know what to do with it. Because obviously there are many people who would use it for procrastination, for not doing anything, um, or for doing other things, other types of hobbies. So, yeah, then you end up with this selected group of people who have time, who are interested in using it for doing fundamental research, and have the motivation and discipline and all to do so. This is rather small part of the society and i'm certain that as a government as a society you can motivate more people there um there is money available for science from governments um and and in a certain way this is already happening eh? Mm -hmm. money from governments is being spent on fundamental research but not in a communistic way it's always with this very weird um proposal uh, method of I'm going to discover this mm. I'm going to work on this topic uh, I'm, I'm I'm planning this this four year project or how many years it is and um please give me money this is this is I, I think not the good method so what I'm what I'm pleading for here is um, a structure where you can at least have people working for a significant amount of their time. I agree that 10% is very few. It's something, but it's very few. And it also doesn't necessarily mean indeed that it's going to be used for, for this um, purpose. But if you already have something like 50%, jobs where you require someone um, to, to work on an engineering project or something more application-related uh, for 50% of their time, and then the other 50% of their time, you say, like, okay, you're free to do whatever you want. And that's already a very different uh, equation. Um, and and I think there is a possibility there. And I think that's good general yeah. advice, too, because a lot of times, you know, if you talk, like, from a very general perspective, let's say science is, a, is an art, and music is an art, and whatever, all, all, theater, whatever it is that you love to do is an art form. In, in succeeding as an artist in the world, someone who makes generative work that is going to transform the world, in order to succeed at that, you really do have to devote a ton of time to it. But at the same time, 
I'm very careful to advise anyone to just quit their job and, you know, go and try and become a stand-up comedian or something like that. Because there's an extraordinary risk in all likelihood that's not going to work out for most people. And so what I like about what you're proposing is that you're talking about a sort of middle ground where you find a way, you construct a system within your own studio, within your own laboratory, so that new people coming in can orient themselves towards these generative works, these generative arts and experimentation and theory. But at the same time, they do that by by minimizing and cutting down, like Anastasia is saying, bare bonesing what needs to be done to sustain that work. And so that there is a, a sort of balance between the industrious, what you need in order to feed yourself, essentially, and keep the lights on, and the time available to do a, that generative work, which isn't necessarily promising, maybe for 10, 20 years, and uh, you can't really count on it to make you money. So I like that. I think it's healthy. I, I, think, I think that's even very general advice that can be used not only in academics, but also in industry. Because um, in industry, you have this very, very obvious and, and very um, natural uh, culture of trying to have results fast, going for application fast. Uh, so there is not so much of room uh, in, in many companies for doing some blue sky research. So typically the companies that will be uh, doing this are big companies which can set aside a little part of their budget for this kind of research. And then typically also this research uh, departments will be rather small compared to the entire company. But if companies don't, do not do that at all, they risk um, not getting ahead quick enough in the long term. And that's where this all boils down to. You have the, the capitalistic system, which is basically, uh, and I mean this in, in the very general sense of in the economy, in politics, in science, basically in everything, uh, also in art, is always going for very quick, um, perhaps superficial rewards. And you cannot reach the same with um with the uh, capitalistic system for reaching very deep um in the same amount of time you need typically uh, a lot of time for for knowledge to progress or for fundamental knowledge to progress mm. so if you don't do it you will typically reach a bottleneck in your industrial application until you address that bottleneck and what is happening in practice is that uh, in in many industries they wait until that bottleneck is the bottleneck is reached until they begin to address the problem. Same as what happens typically in politics, they wait until there is a problem, then they will solve it. But that's just the essence of how the capitalistic system works. While in the communistic system or socialistic system, um, depending on how you want to call it, it's 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 rather the idea of let let's let's have a little bit more of a long-term perspective here and see where we can get in the long term and long term is very uncertain so you anyway are going to work with um with big question marks whether this is going to be useful at all um but let's say the topic of climate change um if you see this risk of 
um, nature devolving over long periods in time, you have the basic choice of trying to do something about it or ignoring it. What is the best choice to make? I think the ignoring part is always the worst one. At least do something. Even if the, the, the risk is small or the perceived risk is small, the wisest choice is always to work uh, on these things um, to a certain degree. And very often in practice, you see that these things are not being addressed until it is too late or until the effects are being felt. Mm. And so with climate change, um, how, how comes that 30 years ago, the knowledge was obviously not the same, but the knowledge was there. Um, basically, scientists had very similar ideas as now about um, the, the repercussions of climate change and, and, and um, their, their outlook, say, 100%, 100 years in the future. Um, why is it only in the past years that we see uh, electrical vehicles being being produced in mass? Well, actually, the possibility was there already way, way before. Now the interest is there. I think it's related to the fact that we see, we feel um, very close at home some changes in climate that make us think like, oh, it's here. Like the, the, the hotter summers we have in the past years. And then, of course, you, you, you still have the question, like, is this really something that uh, is, is human, um, is, it, is it related to human actions? Is it because of the carbon dioxide? Uh, is it because of something else? Uh, you have this discussion that will go on anyway. Uh, but very often with this, with this question marks is um, you can begin to think about it in advance or you can wait until the problem is there. And very often the, the second option is taken. And in some way you can say this is a, a good way of working in most cases because why would you solve a problem when it's not there yet? But some problems cannot be solved when, when they're already appearing. They need to be solved in advance. For example, let's take with climate change. The prediction was already 30 years ago. Like by that time, we have this point of no return. And if we address the problem afterwards, it's, it's actually not necessary anymore to solve it because it's too late. Of course, that's all theory. But put a case, you really have such a problem that reaches some instability point. And from that moment onwards, the problem is just evolving uh, in a way that you cannot manage it anymore. Then yeah, you better address it before that point, well, so and you don't wait until the point occurs. I think that this actually ties really neatly back into something that we were talking about earlier, which is the way that our scientific stories are structured. And you were talking about this in context of plasma, where you were saying that there are these lines and papers that you read that you know nanoscale bubbles are thermodynamically impossible, not worth even considering or looking at, and so the field doesn't take into account that perhaps there is some fundamental misconception in the way that ideas are presented, which would materially alter the research that is done downstream if it was possible to consider that classical thermodynamics does not contain within itself the entire description of how nature works, right? So there's some kind of update that has to happen in order for us to be able to create a model that's more effective and more functional. And until we can make that update, then 
I, I sometimes worry that there is a tendency to act before we have a really good model because that thing that you see in physics is everywhere, right? It's not just in thermodynamics. It's easy to point to thermodynamics because it's your wheelhouse and you know it and you've and you've done enough research to suddenly be like, oh my God, I think that they're missing something. And I think that people like Lindzen, his argument is, hey, I think people are missing something and it's tied up in a vast consortium of global interests and uh, markets and power that is now turned into a machine of its own right. And so I've started to translate climate skepticism into machine skepticism, where you basically have the influence of the oil companies, the influence of the energy sector, the influence of scientific funding for climate research, the influence of the compassionate, I want to do the right thing for the planet. And all of these are kind of a toxic brew, which makes it very, very difficult to see what's actually happening. Because on one hand, you know for a fact that every single civilization in the history of the planet has died because of climate change. Like you go through civilization after civilization, you're like, well, it stopped raining and they were fucked. And so it's like, okay, we know that that's the baseline. And so... We have to keep that in mind. Well, on the other hand, knowing that, okay, so the last time that climate change threatened an empire, they decided that they were going to put virgins into the volcano to appease the gods. And guess what? They were still fucked by climate change. And so our task is to be like, what of what we're doing is putting virgins into the volcano? And what is actually building more robust and resilient systems? And so I'm in the camp of like fewer virgins in volcanoes more productive, forward-thinking, goal-oriented projects, like you say, because you have to do something. Like, you can't just look around with, like, your, you know, your thumb in your ear waiting for the wave to come. You, you, you have to be proactive because you know that civilization depends on agriculture, and agriculture depends on climate being stable, and you know that climate changes. And so all of these questions of, is it human-caused or not, is almost kind of idiotic because you're like, yo, look at the history. This is going to change. You know it's going to change. It has changed dramatically. And so our goal is to be able to figure out, to see through the mass of all of these interests and to see what are the things that are actually going to create a more resilient system versus the things that are just going to allow that... He, he, the environmental industrial machine to just keep churning through the, the the hearts of the people to get them to do weird stuff that doesn't actually help. It's it's very much aligning with this uh, worldview that I have about uh, narratives and signs that are being followed. Mm. So it's these machines that are making the narrative. It's not the people mm. and. I, I, I feel that's one of the biggest problems in science because in the end, everything becomes politics and it's not science anymore. Everything becomes this narrative and the public perception plays a role there very, very much because it's the public perception that will also determine where politicians want to put their wallet. And so ultimately, which are the scientific projects that are being funded these are very often the scientific projects that you see in movies. 
that you see being fed to the the general audience, this, uh, the, the let's say non-scientific uh, part of the world. It's it's actually I think go we're in a very very interesting situation. Feel that in this century we will have a modern, a huge, in my in in my expectations, a huge modern revolution in science, simply because these narratives were so powerful, hmm. because they were upholding so many ideas that are wrong, that scientists will be very surprised to see that they were wrong, because. They were really fed this uh, this narrative so much that I believe in it, and that they cannot imagine them to be wrong. All right, so there's a very particular narrative I really want to talk to you about because I'm an astronomy professor now. My background is in w water mechanics, essentially. You are a plasma physicist. You're looking at liquid plasma, and so the current conception is that the stars are some sort of balls of gas this gaseous plasma and that's what powers all of the reactions we both came across the work of pierre marie robitaille and this is how we actually ended up getting in touch and pierre has this sort of <laughs> renegade perspective although it was entertained you know quite seriously a hundred plus years ago but he, he has this perspective that the sun is not a gaseous plasma. It's actually some sort of liquid metallic substrate. I came across Pierre's work rather incidentally. Just a friend in a group that I was in posted one of his videos. And, you know, I reached out to him in grad school and we corresponded a little bit. And I've gotten to know him over the years. And I've gotten to understand his ideas really well over the years. And I've gone back and read these old correspondences. You know, he put together this fantastic historical perspective uh, on the debate about the material composition of the sun. I learned so much. But when Pierre went out into the world and tried to share his ideas with people, he met a lot of resistance. And, you know, a lot of it was knee-jerk resistance, and it was very much of the kind that we've been speaking of, where we already know how that works. We don't need to mess with it. it we know that the sun must be this way because... Eddington has shown this and it's just done basically we don't need to work on that anymore and at some point I started to look at this word plasma very carefully because you know Pierre's always arguing the sun can't possibly be a gas and and I didn't really notice too many astronomers using the word gas to describe stars now, if you push them on it and you say you know you start asking about what sort of models they're using they are using gaseous models but they use the word plasma. And when you start to study the concept of plasma, you very quickly realize that it's not a complete story. And this is where we were at at the beginning of the podcast, that sometimes it can behave liquid-like, sometimes it can behave gas-like. It seems like it's a really nebulous term. And I think pretty early on, I started pushing on Pierre, like, hey, Pierre, you could just use this word plasma because I, I understand that what you're talking about in this liquid model is a new concept, but it could fit into the plasma world possibly, right? Because plasmas are understood to be, you know, they can cover that, that conductive liquid type state uh, material. 
And so I, I've often wondered if Pierre's ideas couldn't actually find a home in, pla in the concept of plasma if we were to open up the definition of plasma a little bit. But anyways, I want to hear, uh, how did you find out about Pierre's work? And I guess it won't come as a surprise that I, that I at some point encountered his work because I was doing a literature study on plasmas in contact with liquids, plasma generation inside liquid phase. And so you begin to search with key terms like plasma, liquid, and at some point you might end up with an article in your search list which says like, oh, the, the liquid model of the sun. Um, and so at some point um, I encountered uh, one of, one of uh, Pierre-Marie's papers and um, it was immediately, I think, the, the 40 proofs paper, the, mm. the 40 lines of evidence, um, where I yeah I opened it, I, I searched in it, and I uh, quickly went through it, saw also quite uh, uh, quickly that there were many, many arguments that seemed to be related to spectroscopics and then, um, some others uh, related to other things. And... Um, I have to admit, I wasn't reading it into detail. I also was not aware about in which public, uh, in which journal it was being published, but it totally made sense to me in the context of my, uh, of my search. So I, um, at some point was writing my review paper, uh, coming to this, um, problem that I want to state that you have this bubble mechanism and this electronic mechanism for the plasma initiation in the liquid phase. And you have so much of resistance in the field, maybe not as much as um, Pierre-Marie was experienced with his model, but at least in, in this niche field of uh, plasma initiation in liquid phase, there seemed to be quite some resistance in the modern times for this electronic mechanism. Like it, it, it's, it's so hard to imagine uh, an electron avalanche in the liquid phase. But there, um, I found it already startling that people were literally saying that in, in uh, research papers or review papers, while at the same time, you, can, you could find articles uh, saying the complete opposite, that they had observed electron avalanches in the liquid phase. And I give some, ex uh, some examples. So in this review paper, um, I give some examples of especially... Uh, cryogenic liquids, of course, a little bit different type of liquid than you would typically uh, occur at standard conditions. But it says already something. You can have a high electron mobility in liquids. And so from that um, thought, I, I began to uh, think like, yeah, there are so many things being said in the literature, so many things being taught, uh, apparently, by, by researchers in my field. Uh, based on this concept that a plasma always needs to be a gas. And that if you, and this is the weird thing, if you then looked in literature of plasma-liquid interaction and uh, plasmas generation, plasma generation inside the liquid phase, very often you saw the people talking, in this, the researchers um, publishing this research, formulating their, their um, findings in terms of gases and and like a dense gas approximation to approach the liquid phase that i found it like okay yes 
a liquid in a certain sense can be seen as a dense gas, but it can also be seen as a sloppy solid. Mm. So why, why do we always see this one approach and never the second one? And for me, there was, of course, an invitation like, okay, let's write about it. Um, nobody's talking about it, apparently, or not necessarily because there were some people in the past as well, um, previous century, who were publishing some works on this, this possibility. Uh, but all in, in, it was very limited. M most people were, were really going uh, towards this bubble mechanism and, and trying not to consider too much this electronic mechanism, it seemed. Although it's not that they ignored it, certainly not. They were talking about it. But the way that they were talking about it to me seemed like um, going in the wrong direction. It's an impression. I'm certainly not going to, to say that it uh, was, was uh, going in that direction necessarily. Um, but I found it a very interesting thing. And that's how I ultimately referred Pierre-Marie's work in, in the paper, uh, because I needed some uh, arguments to show that plasma scientists tend to approach the liquid phrase as a condensed gas, as a, as a dense gas. And uh, one example is the word fluid being used a lot in plasma science. Um, and, and so fluid you can use for gases, for liquids, as if they are almost the same category of matter, you know? Um, of course, that's not necessarily true. Uh, if you tell this to a plasma physicist, they will say, like, no, 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 no. It's just that you can, you can use the same equations for gases and liquids, and that's why they call it a fluid. But it's the language that influences people's thinking, you know? Mm -hmm. So th that's already one thing. Then um, also this very weird uh, observation that I had in some of the publications in my field, when they tried to model the chemistry in the liquid phase, they were using zero-dimensional chemical kinetic models to model this liquid chemistry, very similar as the way they did it already for, for many, many years for gases, for the gases, uh, gaseous plasmas. So. Once more, you see this analogy that, that, that they start with um, something they know very well, the gaseous plasma, and they apply it to something they know less about, and in this case, the liquid. And that's also one of these very weird observations that I did um, during this literature study. Liquids, although very abundant on Earth, are the least investigated state of matter from the three fundamental states of solid, liquid, and gas. Hmm. Is it just because they're hard to study because they're so disordered? I think that's the idea behind it, but I don't think it's a good reason in the sense that people very often limit themselves with their ideas. And if you have the idea that it's a difficult thing to describe, you will less likely attempt it. So historically, the answer is like, yes, people thought that it was always the more difficult one to describe. Um, but is that necessarily so? How do we know? Th maybe there were just not uh, insufficient attempts to, to really do so. Now, um, the, 
the weird thing is it's, it, it happens to be this state of matter which which happens to be in the middle you know the the you have the, the solid phase uh, at the one side and then you have the, the gaseous state at the other side um how comes that this middle one is seemingly the most difficult one to to investigate and there you indeed have this idea that it's so disorganized uh you cannot really model it in a in a very easy way so um yeah, let's let's keep it for later, I guess. <laughs> for when when it become when we have more powerful computers, more powerful methods. Um, well, I think previous century they could already have done things uh, theoretically, analytically, to describe liquids that they just didn't do. Um, now that's of course uh, a story for for later, perhaps. Um, but there you see the context that I was that I was coming from. Finding this paper of Pierre-Marie Robitaille made me immediately think, like, it makes totally sense that in plasma physics, even, even beyond plasma physics, um, scientists were more ten, um, tended to, to, to use a gaseous model for the sun simply because it was the more understood phase of matter. Mm. Not necessarily because it was the correct answer. And then you have this question that you can ask, like, okay, if you just, let's not talk about liquid model of the sun anymore. If you have two competing models that are being um, investigated in, in, um, at some per uh, certain time, and, and they're competing, and you have both provenance from the one model, you have provenance from the other model, and nobody really knows which one is the correct one and which one is not. Well, if this situation goes on for many, many years, for many decades, for many centuries, then obviously you might say it's it's a fair uh, um, it's a fair match at some point. And if then the decision is made, this model is more um, correct than the other one um, because the data says so. Then you can say like, okay, fair enough. We go for this one model. Let's work further with this one model. And so. From the moment you begin to work further with this one model, you have made a choice. You abandon the other one. And then you can ask the question, when are you allowed to do that? Hmm. When do you have enough of evidence? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's this is a question that we are obsessed with, right? We think about it a lot in terms of relativity and the death of the luminiferous ether especially lately, where it's like, what is the point at which you say this is no longer something that we will entertain, think about, investigate, or pursue for something that is is a foundational aspect of nature? And the flip side of that is, under what circumstances do we have to open up the book again mm. and rethink things? When does it become so glaringly obvious that we need, that we've got to go back and turn over some very foundational initial assumptions, which is very painful, of course, in any discipline. I think I'm going to close the window. I think the uh, the question you're asking now here is easily answered, in my opinion. You just don't abandon theories, and of course, then 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 you can ask the question like, then what does does make sense to do science if you don't abandon the wrong theories? Um, well, 
they're still interesting from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. They have some educational value. So why would you just start ignoring them completely in the scientific literature? Well, I can tell you, I, I, I have an answer. Was that meant to be a rhetorical question or did you want an answer? No, you can, you can certainly, it's certainly not meant to be rhetorical. You can you, certainly try to answer. Story, the science is a, is a process of constructing a story about how nature works. And a story by its very nature, did you ever read Choose Your Own Adventure books when you were a kid? So um, uh, in the United States, we had these books where it wasn't a book that you were supposed to read linearly. You would read 10 pages and then it would be a decision. Okay, so if you're going to do this, turn to page 30. If you're going to do that, turn to page 45. And then it would take you through the book. And the, and the challenge of the book was to figure out all of the ways in which you could experience all of the storylines. Science fundamentally doesn't work like that because science wants to have a single story, which is that this is how it happened. This is what we know. And this is what we're going to know next. And so the minute that you're like, hey, let's not let's not abandon old theories. You turn science more into a choose your own adventure book where you have this old school way of there's this school of thought. There's that school of thought. There's this perspective. But when you're competing for funding and influence over policy. You can't have those things because they are confusing to the bottom line to the people who are saying science is the way that we interpret the world. It is the way that we know truth and it is the way that we know what action to take next. I mean, in some general sense, being on the same page is what defines sane human humans, right? If you're a person who is, that's how we literally define insanity or schizophrenia or something is like this person's in a reality that's different. They have a different understanding of what's happening in this room than everybody else. And so it's very important for humans to have a shared vision of the world. And it's like, how would you teach students? Because like you also have to think about teaching science, right? Because it's the process of bringing in the next generation if there's no preeminence of one theory over another, how do you teach a student about science? Like, I can't. Well, I know. think there would still be preeminence. I don't think that's totally what Patrick's arguing for. I mean, it, it sounds like the Mastroianni strong link versus weak link thing, where, like, there's this, every, there's this kind of incorrect belief among a lot of people that oh no, if we have all this bad research, these bad theories being published, we shouldn't let them be published, right? Because they'll destroy the fabric of our intellectual atmosphere. But it's not really true. The truth is, you can publish as much garbage as you want, and it just won't be read. People won't cite it. People won't mm. use it. People don't care. It doesn't hurt anything to have a terrible science out there, actually. What really happens is that the best ideas rise to the top. The strong ideas are what need to move we need in order to move things forward and being obsessed with like trying to keep the gate closed for all this stuff because it's threatening is just there's it's not founded in reality there's no reason to believe that's the case there's no reason well, to he, think that the masses are going to take up the worst ideas here you're kind of contradicting one philosopher in science called Paul Feyerabend mm. um Perhaps you've heard his name before. I think he's a very, very uh, interesting figure, which is, in science at least, not, not very known. Um, basically, you can summarize, you know, quite stereotypical way his, his point of view that 
uh, science is just a bunch of people shouting at each other and the one shouting the loudest, the one having the, the highest charisma, the one having the highest status in the group, these ones will win and these ones ultimately get their message across and that's the message that is being adopted. Uh, and of course, that sounds ridiculous if you're a scientist because you don't see yourself belonging to such a such an industry. But the problem is that in this discussion in the philosophy of science, nobody was able to contradict him really, because the, the many examples that he gave sounded very uh, true in support of, of his theory. So. Um, I don't agree with this idea that the strongest ideas are the ones that bubble up and, and, and surface. It's certainly certain characteristics of these ideas and theories that make them bubble up towards the surface, but it's not independent of the people that um, support them. Well, it's hard to get an the objective people... perspective on that because we live in a world where there's a lot of defensive moves by the people whose ideas are bubbling to the top to suppress the ideas that contradict them. I mean, there's an open competition of ideas. And so there's defensive moves along the way, all the way along the way, like even if it's just laughing at an idea in public, that's a defensive move to move your bubble up to the top of the surface. That's, that's true. But let's say that we take a uh, thought experiment, and you have an idealized situation where you have two ideas, presented by equally charismatic people to a room full of scientists. And for whatever reason, both of these people are mathematically perfect in terms of the emotions that they evince in the audience. Exactly the same reactions. Does the good idea win or does the bad idea win? I would say it's for a big part a matter of chance. And there mm. is one way I can explain this. What you describe is a metastable balance. It, it's something that cannot exist for a long time in science. I'm not saying this as, as, as a law. I'm saying this as a historical uh, observation. Very often, people are so uncomfortable with uncertainty that they want to choose a site. So they will use... I, I, I wouldn't say whatever excuse they can find, but they will find excuses to go for one side, ultimately. And, okay, it might be harder to convince some of the people in the group than others, but in the end, you have this group dynamics which will pull everyone to one side, or mostly everyone to one side. And then you get the concept of peer review that gets in the way of um, trying to give the alternative theory enough chance to survive mm. because if you're trying to propose some because what is peer review peer review basically means that you ask your peers is this a worthy idea to publish or not is this something that can appear in the scientific literature or not if you belong to a group which identifies themselves with a certain theory that contradicts everything or most or the most important part of what this proposed publication says, then do you want to have it published in scientific literature? Or will you rather like to call it non-scientific or science denial or something alike? 
Yeah, I think and the answer the answer is clear. I mean, it plays out every day. Yeah. So th this is confirmation bias at a, at a at a very institutional level, at such a level that most you know I, I'm certainly not saying that all scientists are are um, blind for for these things. There are certainly some which are um, getting a feeling for these things, but. For some reason, science is full of very, very smart people, very intelligent people who still fall for this trap in mass. It, it, it's like on, on a global scale, this is something, these group dynamics that reign in science are so strong that scientists who will start to doubt about certain theories will at some point start to doubt about themselves sufficiently to still follow the group and get in line again. And the yeah, ones who you don't... you feel crazy if you're going against all of these people, yes. right? I mean, you, you can't challenge some of these ideas because their forefathers were are essentially deified. They're gods. I mean, Einstein is basically a god, right? There's never been anyone... Most people have this intuitive understanding there's never been anyone smarter than Einstein. And if you have an idea that is perhaps an addendum to some of... or Or in some ways a different way of looking at the problems Einstein was looking at, you're crazy. You can't, you can't, you think you're smarter than Einstein, right? It's like, you, how can you, how can you assert such an idea? And that's a big problem with, with uh, how science is typically taught in schools, I think. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that people like Einstein uh, become these de deities or idols to children. It's certainly a, a good motivator for them to, to become scientists. But what is not taught enough, I think, is that these people were also just people. Right. And they're, they're, they did very important things. They were very smart, very creative minds who accomplished um, things that no other uh, humans did because their work is unique. Um, so there is certainly a reason uh, to look up at them. But at the same time, there is also very, very much reason to take a distant look and, and realize that all of these things have been historically grown. Einstein has become famous for a big part because he was a charismatic figure. Not necessarily because he was smart, because, but because he sounded smart. And I'm certainly not saying that he was not smart. I'm, I'm um, I'm very convinced Einstein was uh, one of the brilliant minds of the previous century. But the problem is that brilliant minds can create very complicated theories so hard to understand that most people do not have sufficient insight to see whether it is something that makes sense or not. And here, and I certainly don't want to call Einstein a scammer, but here you can make an analogy with scams. For example, this, um, let's say, pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, the ones that you very often uh, encounter in terms of stock market and, and uh, similar companies um, working working with, with uh, some kind of system where if, if they attract more money, uh, if they attract more people, they can provide more money to people until they're, they're uh, having some, some um, 
saturation and the whole system collapses. Um, very often, one of the characteristics of pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, and like all these scams is that they are complicated. So people cannot easily find an inconsistency. They are typically formulated in such a way that people stop thinking at some level because, and stop questioning it at some level because they cannot answer any way whether it's right or wrong. And it the pyramid side of it is important too, where you see that other yeah. people who are smart have invested in that structure. Right, you look around the room, and all of the smartest people are like, "Yeah, this guy—he's uh, making tons of return on my investment. I'm gonna go with it." And you're like, "Well, they—they they couldn't all be wrong, right?" And this happens, I think, in science certainly, where you're looking around the room, and and there's people who you might perceive as smarter than you who are buying into something, and so there's that persuasion to believe in it. And it's not only about far as the way that science is being performed. Um, and I think th this is a topic that is not very often talked about, but that is certainly uh, something that needs to be talked about, is um, we, we have progression and, and uh, industrial pro progression already that we witnessed from the past that very easily we might think like, okay, you know, the fact that the computer exists means that our species has evolved in knowledge so much that we are knowing enough uh, to have some certainty, enough to um, ridicule some, some weird ideas uh, from pseudoscientists, from um, whatever that you feel doesn't fit in science. Um, but the problem is, this is a very, very, very common argument. Like, do you, you're using a cell phone and still you believe in astrology? Like, don't you believe in science? Don't you believe that blah, blah, blah? Um, our scientific knowledge is more important than whatever spiritual uh, ideas that are still in the world uh, besides science. But the problem is that industrial progress um applications do not necessarily mean that you know how they work in all details 100 obviously i'm not saying that people don't know at this point what 100 oh, i'm just saying 100 like this is one of the biggest misconceptions is that you have to understand fundamental nature in order to develop technologies but it, it couldn't be further from the truth Obviously, some scientific understanding can be instrumentalized. This is not being questioned. But what I'm saying is that the people who developed the first technologies, the Wright brothers or even just cavemen uh, learning to throw spears, they, they didn't understand the aerodynamics and how the, the gravitational buoyancy worked. And they had no real fundamental understanding of the physics of the situation. They just tried different designs. And this is still how most technology is done. It's, it's this iterative way of trial and error. You try something, you modify it, you see if it works better. And of course, you can parameterize it very empirically, right? You can create mathematical equations that have variables for each one of the aspects that you want to tweak, but you're still doing this iterative trial and error process. I, I just think this is a huge, huge, important misunderstanding especially in the public in terms of how technology arises, because most people think that, oh, you go and study the basic science and then you go and build a technology. And it's like, 
No, not not at all. It's it's a very uncommon occurrence that such a evolution would 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 happen. Um, but then, of course, you might also have the illusion that it happened as an uncommon occurrence. Well, actually, it was a matter of luck, kind of, that with this theory, which is wrong, for example, you could still come to the right conclusions. Mm. And that's something that many people deem very unlikely, but I think it's way more likely than, um, than commonly taught. So coming back to the, the, the concept of um, idols like, like Einstein, um, I, I think what is very important to realize is that it's not simply that uh, these people were uh, putting out ideas, they were putting out a method. People nowadays look at Einstein as an example of how to perform science. But if you think about how he was performing science, it was a very, very weird method in, in general. His way of thinking of, I imagine to be God, how would I make the universe? How would I make the, the laws of physics? How would I construct the fundamentals of the universe that I'm shaping. That was basically the, 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 the thought process that Einstein was, was making to develop his, uh, relativist, uh, his, his theory, of, uh, uh, theory of relativity uh, and so on. This was something that, uh, for example, Dirac was also uh, voicing in, in one interview that I've, that I've heard, uh, where he said, like, Einstein was very unique in that way. He was not very, very commonly, uh, oh, well, nobody else was doing it that way. Nobody else was looking at science that way. But it became kind of adopted in science because now you have this idea that theories need to be beautiful, need to be elegant, need to be simple. And for a big part, that comes from Einstein, that comes from many of these other idols uh, from the previous century, perhaps also from Newton. Um, and, and some other uh, scientists in, in the centuries before. But this, this idea that needs to be elegant and beautiful, there is no rational argument for it, if you think about it. That they need to be simple. Okay, you can, you can, you can argue that uh, the, more, the more simple the theory is, the, the easier it is to work with. So there you still have some kind of rational argument. But... If, if you uh, begin to talk about beauty and elegance, that's something that very often comes back when you, when you begin to interview Nobel Prize winners and um, other, other scientists uh, very high in the hierarchy that they say, like, yes, these this theories, they're, they're so elegant, they're so beautiful. Um, and, and that's why you know kind of that they're true, right? Mm. Uh, well, I think that's a very, very big misconception. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's looked under a microscope quickly realizes the complexity that lies under the surface. I mean, the, it, it's really as far from true as imaginable because nature really seems to be irreducibly complex in that no matter how close you look at any system, the more missing pieces of the puzzle appear to you. 
it, it really seems to be the rule more than the exception. Um, I agree, and this complexity is, is, is one part of it, but it's also simply that we don't know a priori how the laws of physics look like. If you if you just start from from a white paper, you you don't you assume you know nothing. You do experiments. Where do you start? That's a very very hard question. Mm. Um, historically, we know now how the story goes. Um, if we would have a way to reproduce this experiment that we call Earth, and and we we would see science evolving at some point again. Would we get the same story as we have nowadays? I don't think so. I think there are uh, many, many uh, factors of uh, things like luck and, and coincidence and um, ha having certain individuals um, that, that were coming to certain conclusions that were having the same properties or similar properties as Einstein, like being charismatic, being uh, having, a, having a high status in science at some point. Um, propagating ideas that would have been different from the situation we're in now. And it seems like not many people believe that possibility anymore. It's, it's, it's as if this narrative that we're living in is the narrative because that's the one we would anyway come to. And I'm not so sure. I have thoughts on this, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I want to drive this back more towards the sun too. Go ahead. Yes. So I think that I think that we should come back more to the sun and I think the way that we come back to the sun is through the idea that I actually have a feeling that if we were to go back in time and to run it again we would end up in a very similar place because I think that the way through is not to have done it differently in the past but to recognize that the arc of science is to continuously end up in a place that isn't quite right and knowing that you have to go back a little bit, look at all the circumstances, look at the ideas that were left behind, and then pick up a thread and start to work it again. Basically a mandatory course in epistemic humility for all students <laughs> each year. And just the knowledge that like, the way that ideas seem to emerge is that I have this vision of, the, of, of it in my mind as this... Uh, like, Have you ever seen the time lapse of a mushroom growing? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the mycelium comes and it colonizes the log and then it fruits and the fruiting body gives this insane structure and the structure is beautiful and, and robust and then it starts to age and it starts to degrade and it turns black and it produces spores and the spores fall back down to the ground and they produce more mycelium and then again... It gives fruiting bodies, but it's a different fruiting body. And the and the and the functional theory is the fruiting body. It is the mushroom, but it too will die, and then we'll kind of go back to 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 some nebulous mycelial uncertainty. Like we don't really know what is, and there's people that legitimately challenge it, and the old ideas and institutions have decayed. And so now it is our task to build up the next institution with the epistemic humility of knowing that the thing that we build now will one day be taken down by someone else because some new thing will come and that we can't possibly anticipate right now to explain. And so there's no, there's no perfect moment in the past to return to. 
this is this is it. This but is I, the I think art. That the path to that is not that the old way needs to be taken down. It's that hey, we were just looking at this not in the best possible way. As the old way, well, I think that the old way here is the 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 crystallization of it into an institution, and institutions fail. They fall. They falter. They become old and heavy and in unable to continue generating new and exciting and accurate visions because they are constrained by the shape that they have They taken. lose their elasticity as they, they age. They lose their elasticity as they <laughs> age. Like old skin. Like, aging is a fundamental thing of nature. Like, rocks age, trees age, we age, ideas age, institutions age. And so, for me, the grand challenge is realizing that we live... In a moment, like in the 1950s, I think that it would be hard to look at the institutions of science and say they're crumbling and need to be taken apart. It would have been a very different thing to be born in the heyday of the modern atomic age. But now, in 2020, 2023, we can sit here and be like, well, you know, things have degraded over the course of the last hundred years. And it's our challenge to now see what new ways we can see them in. And I think that the sun is very promising because so many, like Shiloh has been desperately trying to get us to, there's so many things in nature that hang on our understanding of plasma and the structure of the sun and the structure of gases. And if we can come up with new ways of thinking about them, then we will restructure everything. That's very cool. Yeah, and one thing that's really special about Pierre you know, there's a lot of people with theories that contradict mainstream science out To be there. fair, there's a lot of things that are special about Pierre. So there's a lot of things. I, there's a, he's an amazing man. Uh, he's an amazing human being. Great, great, uh, great person, right? But he's also very special amongst people that I've encountered who have contradictory ideas. Because when you read Pierre's work... You very and when you listen to his lectures, you very quickly understand that you're dealing with a real scientist. You're not dealing with somebody who's coming at this from without a baseline understanding of how things work. He's a man who had an illustrious career inside the academy, working on a very technical matter, developing the MRI machines. And he made some realizations about the way that matter produces light while he was doing that that led him down this completely other path, but he still retained this really careful uh, criticism, this really careful analytic mindset that I feel like a lot of people in the fringes of science don't possess because they haven't been through that mill before. They haven't succeeded inside of that, that superstructure to the degree that Pierre did. And so I think he's a very special, a special kind of contrarian in that he has access to this whole career of doing really careful technical science, and he brings it into the way that he presents these, idea, these new ideas. And yet, he still is not taken seriously. He has a really, I mean, taken seriously by these mainstream astrophysicists. It still flies in the face of this dogma that the stars are gas. And that's a really curious question. Why is that? Why, why, why is that such an unentertainable idea. Why do the astronomers need those stars to be gas so badly? Well, the, the answer is simple. If Pierre-Marie is right about the sun, then 
it, it's hard to put a number on it, but a large part of cosmology and astrophysics is wrong. Yeah, I think cosmology is the answer. I think that's the answer. The, the, the thing is that um, when you're talking about the sun, you're talking about the stars in general as well. And how much of cosmology is uh, revolved around stars and not so much about uh, uh, on, on other uh, astral bodies? And the way that they produce the light that we... Because in astronomy, all we have is light. It's not like a biological system where you can do experiments on something in a dish. You just look at the light. And you have to have a theory for how that light is produced materially. Otherwise, your entire, your entire understanding could be built on sand. And so I, I think that... Yeah, this, I think that, that you're right. The, the reason that it's such a challenging idea for most astronomers to even entertain is because it impacts thousands of other theories and that's really really queasy destabilizing vibe to bring into a room can we break down exactly why it's so destabilizing because i mean it seems like a okay so you redefine what plasma is a little well, bit well pierre's not trying to redefine what plasma is this no is kind of, this is... pierre is trying to redefine what cosmology is <laughs> Basically, I mean, Pierre insists that, uh, and he has very good reason to do so, that the the surface of the sun and uh, I believe the sun's material composition is a form of liquid metallic, metal, uh, liquid metallic hydrogen, right? This this elemental liquid metal, and he doesn't say that that is a kind of plasma, and I I wonder if that doesn't have to do with why it's so difficult for people to put their handles on. Well, there's there's two things here. So I, I want to make sure that for somebody who doesn't know Pierre-Marie's work, for somebody who doesn't understand why this is so important, that we explain why changing the structure of the sun would be so destabilizing to cosmology. Because we're talking about this as this bombshell. Like, yeah, this is, this is not only about the liquid metal of the sun. Actually, um, what I would uh, say is very important to understand about Pierre Marie's work is uh, the liquid mo model of the sun is the most uh, known part and the most talked about part from his research. Uh, and, and that I mean, of course, uh, the, the past MRI uh, research, uh, because that one is perhaps even, even more talked about um, in certain um, disciplines. But um, another very important part of his research is on the Kirchhoff's law and the consequences. Uh, the cons if the sun is a liquid and not a gas, this will have an impact on, let's say, I, I just throw a number out, uh, out there, M maybe 25%, maybe 30% of uh, cosmology. So 30% of cosmology you will have to throw in the garbage bin, basically. That's not something that many cosmologists will like to do. Because first of all, um, how do you explain this? And secondly, it also means that a part of your identity is thrown with it in the recycle bin. All right, can we pause that you real quickly just to catch people up? So Kirchhoff's law has been interpreted to... And it, it's not totally clear if this is what Kirchhoff meant, but... At any rate, the way that most people understand Kirchhoff's law is that by 
increasing the opacity of a gas, it can start to behave like a black body. Whereas if you really do observational science on Earth, the only way you get a black body is through a solid or, or a liquid. And so the theoretical aspect in Kirchhoff's law is that it can be applied to dense gases. I think that's what we mean, just to catch people up who, who might have never heard of Kirchhoff's law. And to put that yeah. into layperson English, I think that what you're trying to say is that if... This, 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 so, okay, so the Kirchhoff's law thing is that if you have a gas that is sufficiently dense, it can't actually give a black body spectrum. That's kind of the, the first level explanation of it. What is the visceral level on which people need to feel this? Like, so what that Kirchhoff's law has been interpreted, has been overinterpreted to say that the sun is gaseous given its black body spectrum. You say that 30% of cosmology will be thrown in the garbage. Why would 30% of cosmology be thrown into the garbage with that realization? That, that was without the Kirchhoff's law. So <laughs> very important to realize here is the 30% that I was, you know, I'm not sure about the 30%. I'm just saying a percentage there. Sure. If, if the sun is a liquid, not a gas. That's 30% of cosmology in the garbage bin. If Kirchhoff's law is false in the way that uh, Pierre-Marie is explaining it, 95% of cosmology can be thrown in the garbage bin. So And, and, and why, is, why is that? Including I really the almighty to, uh, cosmic microwave background. Radiation. I really want people to understand yeah. why that is. It starts um, where Kirchhoff's law is applied. It's, it's basically applied on everything. Uh, if, if Kirchhoff's law does not apply to the cosmic microwave background, at least not in the interpretation that is given today, and you don't have this uh, proof of um, this, this basically balloon of, uh, of photons, which is responsible for this... Uh, yeah, what is it like a balloon of photons pre-inflation or, or post-inflation in the early stages of the Big Bang theory? Um, if if the cosmic microwave background does not come from there, then where does it come from? And what would have cosmologists still to stand on to say that Big Bang theory makes sense? Mm. Yeah, because it's really interesting if you there is a a really popular interview that just aired on the Joe Rogan experience, one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And the cosmologist was saying, oh, we have all of this evidence. We know, Joe asked him, hey, is there any chance that we could be wrong about this Big Bang thing? And he said, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, absolutely not. We have all of this evidence that is extremely precise. And Joe was like, okay, what kind of evidence? And he's like, well, there's this redshift thing and then there's this CMB. And it was kind of like, okay, so you have two things and, and, and what we're saying here is that if a gaseous substrate cannot generate a black body radiation through this really mathematical relay mechanism, which is the same-ish mechanism proposed for the stars, then you have a problem with half of the, the Big Bang theory. Half of it. And that's a really uncertain theory. If I went to present my theory at my dissertation to my committee and I was uncertain about half of it, I don't think that I'd be able to publish those findings, right? 
So it, it significantly weakens whether whatever percentage it is, it's definitely half of the of the story of the Big Bang. And so, yeah, anybody who's who's challenging the underlying assumptions of that in a really rational, empirical way is is going to be probably treated as a threat. And that's unfortunate, but it seems to be true. And the reason yeah. for that undermining is because currently cosmology looks at these black body spectra. So it, there's a line that goes between the sun and the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is that the sun is able to give a black body spectrum because gases, because it is it is a gas and there is scattering that happens inside of it that is able to give you this perfect spectrum. And that is the proof by which gases can give black body spectra. And since that has been proven, then you can apply it to something like the cosmic microwave background radiation and say that it too comes from a gas and not that that gas comes that from the birth. Okay. All right. Correct me. Not, not entirely. It's, it's, um, it's certainly somewhat related, but uh, the way that I understand it is um, you have Planck's law. And Planck's law says for a black body, this equation, this this radiation describes uh, black body radiation. The problem: how how do you identify a black body? And especially in in space, I mean, you you don't have any way to go towards this black body, the sun, take a sample, do do whatever kind of experiment with it. And then conclude like, okay, yeah, we, we confirmed that it's made of this material um, and, and that it's a black body for that and that reason. The only things you have is observe, uh, observational data. And for now, this is mostly all the light and, and electromagnetic radiation that is coming from the sun, plus some measurements of uh, solar wind particles. So that's basically what we have. And that's basically where we have to start from. Now, the problem with the sun being gaseous is that it kind of destabilizes um, the... It destabilizes a part of what uh, Kirchhoff's law stands for, a, a part of... Um, Do you mean the, the problem with the sun being treated as liquid? Yes, so if, if the sun would be liquid instead of gaseous, then one well the no i i actually have to start from the beginning again the the problem is that um kirchhoff's law is being used to explain the sun as a gas ball still producing a black body radiation mm -hmm. if it would be liquid it would be way less problematic you don't need kirchhoff's law right that, that's the point that I want to make. If it's a liquid, you don't need Kirchhoff's law. So you end up with way less examples that you can say, like, look, Kirchhoff's law works. Right. Wait, hold on. If it's a liquid, why don't you need Kirchhoff's law? Kirchhoff's law works for condensed matter. You don't need it to justify the material basis of the black body radiation from the sun, because obviously all we can do an experiment on Earth with a liquid that we heat it up and we can get a black body spectrum from it. Yeah, but that's Kirchhoff's law. 
isn't it? Kirk, he, what we mean is we don't need the gaseous component of Kirchhoff's law. I see. Okay, so because there's this there's this thing that's this, there's a there's a uh, experimental component of Kirchhoff's law, and then there's a theoretical component of Kirchhoff's law. The experimental component is that you can heat something on Earth and you can measure its spectrum and you can see that it gives you a black body. You can measure the, the way... theoretical extension of that is that by just increasing the density of some gas, you can also do this. Exactly. Which hasn't been shown on Earth. But the if you tell someone it hasn't been shown empirically, they'll point to the star. And they wouldn't be able to point to the star if the star was understood to be a liquid. And so this is what I'm really trying to get at for people who might not know Pierre-Marie's work, is that at the heart of cosmology, there's this theoretical application of a law that says something about how gases behave in terms of their spectra. And it is a component of the I law. But in very, very specific, extreme circumstances, because it has never been observed on Earth. To that's behave that way. That's exactly the point. So there's this central law that is used in cosmology to be able to look out onto the stars, onto the cosmos, and be able to make uh, predictions and theories about the way that stars and th even the formation of the universe works that is fundamentally based on a theoretical extension of a law that was formulated on the basis of experimental evidence. But the theoretical extension has never been shown experimentally. It remains something that lives outside of the earth, outside of experience. And it is a theoretical proposal that everything hangs on. And so Pierre, by challenging that theoretical proposal, by saying, hey, hold on a second, I don't think that this extension makes sense that's what's so dangerous to the world of cosmology, because if that extension doesn't make sense, then no predictions, no theories, no models that are based on that extension are valid, and all of them have been based on this extension so far. Exactly. This is, this is uh, an example of extrapolation in the sense that you do some experiments on Earth and this, by the way, this is something that cosmologists like to do, apparently. You do some experiments on Earth. You get some curve. You get some theory. You get some uh, thing that seems to describe your experiments on Earth pretty well. Then you look at the stars and you say, like, okay, the situation there is way more extreme. So we have to um, prolong our curve, prolong our theory in that direction. And then we can come to this conclusion that um, things work there uh, in the sun and in, in whatever um, astrophysical body. And somehow this is a solid argument or is considered a solid argument in many cases. Not only well, solid, but it's like a finished argument. It's like it's, it's not even an argument. You know what I mean? It's like it's foundational at this point. It's just a foregone conclusion that it is so. Well, it's a foregone exactly. conclusion because there's a statistical mechanics explanation for the way that sufficiently dense sufficiently dense gases produce a continuous equation, right? So, and, let, and yet there's nothing mechanical about statistical mechanics. The, the way that I understand it is... Um, and I have to admit, it's it's a kind of convincing argument uh, that Kirchhoff and, and Planck, they use this concept of 
uh, cavity where you have a photon gas and these photons they they bounce from the inside of this cavity they bounce on the on the borders of this cavity and then reflect they exchange energy if it's not a perfectly reflecting uh, surface and then uh, because of this exchange of energy you will get a thermal equilibrium at some point and because of this thermal equilibrium you will end up in a state that you will always end up with if you start from similar um, beginning conditions. So ultimately you get one body at one temperature and your photon gas inside your cavity on that temperature will also have these characteristics of that temperature. And that is then described by this, um, this, this uh, Planckian radiation law. Now, the way that it is being uh, proposed in the sun is that in the core of the sun, up to a certain depth, you have the photons being produced. These photons are not in thermal equilibrium, but they need millions of years, if I'm not mistaken, to leave the sun to ultimately get to this thermal equilibrium. So these photons keep bouncing off uh, all kind of particles inside the sun. Um, and, and ultimately will get, according to the theory of the gaseous model of the sun, will get to a thermal equilibrium when they leave the solar surface. So there is a similarity there with how the photons behave. In the cavity, the theoretical cavity case of Planck and, and Kirchhoff, and in this gaseous model of the sun. And so th th there is, I would say, I would say that there is there is a convincing thing to uh, to this argument because Planck was making the same model. The only difference is that in Planck's um, hypothesis, you need a condensed surface for these photons to interact with, a, a well-defined surface of a condensed material, not a gas. And in the sun, it is assumed to be um possible with simply a gas because there's no there's no real material surface to the sun if you open a crack open a first year astronomy textbook you learn that the surface is an illusion right yes so if you would um try to explain the gaseous model of the sun with a real surface to say that at some point you have a real surface and then um you 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 also apply Kirchhoff's law. You also try to make a gaseous model. You will be contradicting all the standard models of the sun, which are all gaseous, of course. That's basically it. You perhaps can formulate a model which which is assuming a real surface with a gas, but then you also get all kind of problems. Like, what do you mean with a real surface of a gas? Um, in in the standard model of the sun right now, if you have to believe um the, the the all of the models uh, together the different frequencies of the light that is being emitted are emitted from different depths and that's why it's not one surface it's multiple surfaces apparently so the real surface should be an illusion according to this model Yeah, it's a very. I think there's there's a risk of shame involved too here on the part of 
people who have been propagating the gaseous sun model and why there's a lot of uh, reluctance to embrace it too, because the idea that you would have based a hundred years of science on a hypothetical test case situation that you can't actually look at in a laboratory is, I don't want to, I don't want to insult anyone, but it seems like it, it may have been a, a pretty glaring mistake that maybe we shouldn't have been so confident in something that we couldn't actually measure on earth. Well, and I, so, Okay. You look at something like supernovas. Supernovas produce heavy elements. We can't produce heavy elements on Earth. We have a theoretical understanding of where the heavy elements come from. And uh, so we... Shabilsky star? We don't know which... That, that is an outlier star. The fact that you can point to it as, this, as, as a named... Do you know Shabilsky star? It's a star that produces heavy elements that shouldn't be able to because it's not big enough. Short-lived. Short-lived heavy elements. But we don't know. It, like, it could be an alien civilization throwing their garbage into the sun. Like, we have no idea. The point is, is that that's an exception. For the most part, you look at stars Maybe. and you're like, you, you, the, the statement that I'm making is that you cannot do it on Earth. And yet, we have a theoretical model for how it happens in the cosmos. So the idea that we must be able to do something on Earth for it to be a viable physical theory doesn't, it doesn't hold as a no, no, logical no. contradiction. No, no, look. The theory was developed, the black body theory was developed on solid bodies. Sure. Thing, right? And they were like, if you take something that is as big and as dense as the sun, which you can't possibly make here on Earth, you're going to see different dynamics. And this is the way that it works. Like we developed the periodic table on Earth and we can classify things on the basis of their material properties. And we tried but for why, a long time. Do you, do you understand why? Why did people look at this perfect black body that the sun is like its atmosphere aside perfect black body why do you think that they didn't immediately leap to this is definitely a liquid or or it's definitely a solid why didn't they think that well they did think that for a long time didn't they because i mean like if you look at uh they, Pierre's no, nobody paper really... on the history of the sun it's like they had all there was the guy who thought that they were like the solarians living on underneath the the atmosphere of the sun right why did they abandon it though is the question why did they abandon I think I think this is. Um, I mean, I have an answer. So, <laughs> the, the, I think this is uh, exactly uh, what we were talking about before. That this is a matter of chance rather than uh, a matter of really having a reason. You have this meta-stable uh, situation where you have two competing theories. People want to make a choice. People have very hard time to live with uncertainty. So they want to make a choice. And if there is, it, it can be just the fact that there was one person, one of the scientists uh, that played a role in it, being the first one to give a good convincing argument to choose for the Gaussian model, that ultimately, or something that at least sounded convincing, um, that at least went into this di direction and not because it was a sufficient argument. Well, yeah, and the so, guy there was the guy who was the champion of the liquid sun towards the end of its being seriously entertained was James Jeans, and Jeans didn't have a way to power the sun. He actually thought it was radioactive elements, and when that be when it became clear that the sun was made out of hydrogen, he was kind of pushed out of the discussion, right? So, and the liquid sun went with it. Eddington, who re who conceived of this powering mechanism, at least got the ball rolling with this whole fusion apparatus and everything 
he used the gaseous sun. And so it went along with all of the progress that took place in the other aspects of stellar physics. And so, yeah, I think there was a lot of just chaos, like random chance that it could have gone either way. And it, and it happened to go the way of the gaseous sun in this case. I think so. Um, and, and, you know, in defense of the, the proponents, the early proponents and, and also the late proponents of the gaseous model of the sun, um, certainly in the early days, you didn't have a lot to work with for imagining what would happen at all of these extreme circumstances in the sun. Um, the same is true also for the liquid model. Did they know about liquid metallic hydrogen back then? No. Did they know, uh, were they able to produce liquid metallic hydrogen in the lab by then? No. They, they didn't have a lot of the same, they had many of the same It's still questionable whether people have even done it today, right? I mean, there's some reports yes. or whatever, but it's very, it's very, you need extremely, you need extreme conditions, right? And okay, so, so I yeah. just, so I just, I just wanted like just lay that out that because I think that there was the the intimation that proposing a theory that was impossible to generate on Earth was somehow a disqualifying factor, and I'm like, I don't think that that's the disqualifying factor here. I think that it's actually much more complex than that. What What do you mean? Yes. Well, like the the idea that you take Kirchhoff's law and you extend it to some kind of cosmic condition where you're like Kirchhoff's law gives you this cosmically. The invalidating thing there is not the fact that you've come up with a condition that cannot be reproduced on Earth that under which you could get the desired effect. The disqualifying effect has to be something foundationally theoretical that is a problem with the formulation, not the fact that you can't reproduce it on Earth. Because like you're saying, if liquid metallic hydrogen is the next level proposal for the sun and you still haven't made it on Earth and all that you have is, is a theory that it could be produced in conditions that are on the sun, then that same criticism can be used to invalidate the new theory. And you want to be careful about how you structure your argument. No, so I think it you... comes down to mechanism, right? Sure, it's like, yeah. why, does the, why does the solid produce this spectrum? And this is why Pierre really gets into the material science of you needing a lattice. You need this multi-nodal tapestry in order to act as the proper antenna that's capable of generating the whole electromagnetic frequency range that you see in a black body and gases don't have that same mechanism like why does a gas give you line spectra there's a reason for that there's a mechanistic reason and i don't think people were totally concerned with the mechanical mechanistic understanding of why gases gave lines and why lattices gave continuous spectra and if that had been the focus that in that day perhaps we'd be in a different situation I, th I think that's that's a plausible uh, assumption. Um, but I do agree with Anastasia that um, we we need to also uh, take into consideration that many of the decisions that have been made in the past uh, by cosmologists were to a certain degree rational, were to a certain degree uh, founded on at least well well sounding ideas some of them more um more convincing than others uh in the emotional sense of the word 
and others may be more rational uh, in the rational sense of the word, but still convincing. Uh, it's just a question, um, is that the only way that it could have happened? I feel that it's a mistake to think that two competing theories cannot coexist. It's just uncomfortable. But this is also one of these famous quotes from one of these famous uh, scientists from the previous century, um, that uh, certainty is an absurd position, while, no, it's the opposite that is formulated, but certainty is an absurd position, uncertainty is an uncomfortable one. And, and that's what it's all about. Um, if we have to talk here about intellectual honesty, the most intellectually honest position that you can take is to let two competing theories coexist and you, you, you see where they're heading over time because there is no criterion to decide when enough is enough. When a theory is successful compared to another one, what kind of criterion are you, are you going to define? The, the, the problem is that the, the way that I would describe it is, is uh, or in layman terms, the most easy way to, to explain this is if you assume that science is this um, machine or this discipline that tries to get us closer to the truth, whatever that way may mean, you can kind of draw this line in time uh, where you say how many percentage you're you're close to the truth so you start with zero percent in the beginning you don't know anything and in the end of time you assume that you get to 100 percent of knowledge 100 percent of understanding of reality external reality so obviously you will have a curve from zero percent to 100 percent when time goes to infinity so you will have some ups, some downs. You will get closer to this uh, asymptote of 100%. And maybe at some point, who knows, maybe at some point, you might even reach that asymptote for some reason. How are you going to decide or going to identify where we are right now on this curve? Are we in the beginning very close to the 0% or are we rather very close to the 100%? People are, I think, too quick to decide that we're very close to the 100% because we have such very evolved um, um, technological applications. But as we discussed before... And they don't see... That's, like, that's, if you don't see uh, progress too, right? If you don't see a lot of progress in an idea, then it's very easy, it's very tempting to think, well, that's because we understand it so well. Yes. Like the, the recency bias of stability. Um, but then you also have Thomas Kuhn uh, in the philosophy of science who, who showed that you have this problem that you never know uh, whether the theory you're working on is correct or not. But people tend to stay with this theory anyway. It's like this paradigm that they don't want to shift from. Uh, and that's what, what Thomas Kuhn then calls normal science. While uh, if you have um, a big breakthrough, that's an exception, according to Kuhn. Now, at the end of the 19th century, 
most science, the scientific community uh, was mostly agreeing upon the idea. 95% of all uh, knowledge about the the universe was was already known, and what was left was only five percent. Quite an arrogant position, if you think about it. Uh, so basically, they they said like, okay, we're we're ninety five percent complete in our scientific models. What kind of metric were they using to think so? Of course, I'm not saying that they were exactly saying ninety five percent, but the feeling even of this progress um, is is kind of arrogant on its own. At this point in time, I feel like we're in a similar stage that, okay, you have certainly scientists which uh, have this feeling of um, we're, we're, we're having big problems here and there in science. But I think if you would interview most of the scientific community, you would get more of this, this impression that um, these are more like leftovers. These are you're not going to question the relativity theory of Einstein. You're not going to question quantum mechanics. You're not going to question this. You're not going to question that. What we are dealing with now is making these theories more perfect here and there, trying to unify them. There are some questions here and there um, which are still being, being asked and not answered. So it is not complete. We, we certainly are not as arrogant to say that we have 100% of all of the answers, but we are as humble to, to say that we are almost there. It, it sounds a little bit like this, like but we're not going to question all of these teachings of the deities from the previous century, Einstein and Bohr and uh, the whole rest, because these are fixed in our minds and that we don't want to uh, distinguish, uh, we don't want to distance anymore from, because experiments. And the problem there is that you lock yourself up into one, one worldview, and you, you, you do not allow institutionally, so it's not only on an individual level as per scientist, but institutionally, you are not allowed anymore to do some things. Like, for example, there are these universities, I'm, I'm sure that there are many universities, which do not question relativity theory. That is science denial. And it is really, uh, I was reading this uh, very recently, this is really a term that is, is being used in the philosophy of science to uh, describe people denying uh, people questioning relativity theory, people questioning climate change or climate science. These are now being defined as, or it's really like a definition, science deniers. And that is a very nice way of putting an ad hominem argument inside a definition, not to make it sound like an ad hominem argument. It's just the language itself that is so ad hominem. And it's, feel that it's, it's so derogatory, right? It's like the worst thing you can be called as a scientist is as a pseudoscientist or a crank or something. And it's yeah. funny because if you go and literally go Google what is a pseudoscientist, what is a crank, you'll come across these list, listicle definitions, these lists of qualities. And on some of these lists is literally denying relativity or denying these found, denying consensus. 
which is very strange because isn't that what science has always done is moved past consensus into a new con new way of looking at things it, it's very troubling that this would be the worst thing you could be called in science is somebody who's going outside of consensus uh, that's really scary to the progress of the art as a whole yeah and also um this this, this concept of scientific consensus it's it's like what are the foundations i re I, I really would like to ask everyone to talk uh, to to think about this question. Why should science be a democracy? Science is not supposed to be. If you think about it, it's not supposed to be a democracy where every scientist can vote for um, their favorite theory. Science is a dictatorship ruled by nature, and nature doesn't care about what you think. Nature just is. And so I don't see how a democracy there has any function at all. You can, of course, give this argument that scientists know more about the, the, the problems in science and all, all the things going on in science to give an opinion about it. But an opinion is, in my opinion, not enough to, to use as an argument. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it are the experiments who have the louder voice or should have the louder voice than the scientists themselves. And in the context of the sun, something that we've talked about a lot is whether or not it's possible that a redefinition of plasma would change the permissivity for Pierre's idea. Shiloh's on this tack so. a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm always I pushing Pierre about this. I, I don't know if he hears me at all, but... Uh, I, I just think that if he could like worm his way into the language that people are already using, he might encounter less resistance. And you know, maybe that's naive. Maybe he would still encounter the same level of resistance. I just, I wonder. I wonder. Because I think that this ties back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is that you're studying plasma in this liquid condition, and if it's possible that the plasma is truly in a liquid and not in these gaseous pockets then what you've done is you've changed the very nature of what we mean when we say plasma. And so it seems like an easier move to make where the sun remains a plasma, it just becomes a liquid plasma instead of a gaseous plasma. Like if instead of saying in the interior of Jupiter there was liquid metallic hydrogen, we would just say, oh, well, there's liquid plasma, right? That would be, that would be huge. And then all of a sudden, all of Pierre's work is perfectly acceptable, or at least it's within the framework of something that's acceptable. Well, I think we shouldn't underestimate how many hurdles have to be passed before we get there. Oh, yeah. Because uh, as, as we discussed, there is a lot of politics going on as well. There is a lot of... Th these narratives are not very easy to break through. How are you going to convince the entire world population, or most of it, that um, most of the funding that has been uh, going to all of this scientific developments regarding uh, solar models, star models, and like all of this money has been going towards a wrong theory, I, if the liquid model is, is true. I actually think that that's an impossible task, and I think that that's probably not the task that we ought to turn ourselves to. I think that our task is to produce the most elegant alternatives that 
can be laid out so that the people who are interested in finding them and picking them up pick them up by virtue of their being the chance to do so. So we we've talked a lot to people who are are after changing a discipline and shifting the way that people think and everybody runs up against this exact same problem. Everybody in the world thinks this way. How in the world am I going to change their minds? And I think that for something like changing the structure of the sun, if a plasma physicist comes in and says, hey, a plasma can be a liquid and this is how it behaves and a liquid plasma actually does give a black body spectrum and these are the various theoretical structures that the liquid plasma can take and then collaborates downstream with somebody who's in solar physics that's interested in proposing a crazy idea because there is like fundamentally i think that people do want to they they want their name on the nobel prize and the nobel prize isn't going to be given for the person that adds one more you know decimal place to some constant about the structure of the sun it's going to be given to someone who comes together with a new idea that is incontrovertible and so this is a network effect that requires different disciplines to come together to be able to look at a problem in a new way and i think that you're uniquely positioned to do so because if you're able to characterize this new form of plasma to a degree that is robust and no one can argue with it because it's experimental and apparent then that's the first step in the direction of then finding someone who's focused on you know who's devoted their entire life to stars to look at it and to be like oh wow that's crazy that that might apply i i agree so and actually this is this is coming back to this um this concept of um science being a hobby yeah? mm. the, the the people making their job out of um working in cosmology seem to be the less strategically positioned to make this kind of breakthroughs it's more likely to be uh someone working in another field who's not as influenced by the narrative in cosmology who's not as much um frightened by the narrative in cosmology because if you're in cosmology working there and you go against the narrative you're going possibly against your job you might lose your job you might lose your position you might lose basically all your chances to stay in cosmology well if you're not in it we have you're this... perfectly positioned to to be immune to these effects we have so i don't know if you've been paying attention to this james webb stuff and how there was uh, rajendra gupta put out this paper a couple months ago now where he proposed that the universe was actually roughly twice as old as we think it is on the basis of James Webb data and he reawakened tired light as a possible component of his theory and he also had some ideas about how to decrease the hubble tension on the basis of some constant by which current constants are 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 they have a specific rate of change over the course of the history of the universe so he has this like very very complete and different theory that explains the age of the universe as, as being twice as old as it currently is. And I don't think that anyone's going to get rid of the Big Bang off the bat. I don't think that there's going to be a moment where people are going to walk into a room and we're going to be like, hey, mea culpa, we were wrong. 
that's not the theory. But I do think that there's going to be a gradual process of people coming up with theories that, because of that metastability in science, are suddenly popular. Whereas, you know, Eric Lerner has been writing about the fact that there was no Big Bang since the early 90s. And nobody listens to Eric Lerner because he has become a persona non grata that's relatively easy to ignore. He's kind of, it's like, it's really unfortunate, but he's become kind of a punching bag for the mainstream to point to of like the idea of no Big Bang is an absurd theory. But Rajendra Gupta comes along, writes a paper, and it's at the right time, in the right place, with the right new data from the James Webb, that people are almost relieved to fall into that new confirmation. They're almost relieved to be able to say, you know, maybe the universe is twice as old, nearly twice as old as we thought it was. And you see the, the, the ratchet turn a little bit. And somebody else, you know, another 10 years from now will turn the ratchet another disc. And at some point when it's like when the universe is a trillion years old, I, I think it can go quick at some points. If you if mm. you see uh, in history, uh, for example, with all this, well, let's say the, the Thomas Kuhn kind of narrative of this normal science, and then you have scientific revolution. Scientific revolutions can be very fast. But I agree with you that we should expect here more something gradual. The, the problem with Kirchhoff's law is um, the information is basically already out there. Pierre-Marie already suggested it to be... Um, no, claims it to be to be wrong um how many people are listening that's an important question to ask how many people are listening his article i think um is is was published 20 years ago 2003 scientific community had 20 years to reply to this claim but there is just no conversation about it. So many of the the the, um, the time um, scheme of of this evolution will will depend on, I think, how these things are communicated to the world. Um, but it's certainly going to be gradual. It, it, I I don't expect uh, cosmology. Uh, the 95%, let's say, that I was uh, talking about before, to be thrown inside the, the, the garbage bin right away. But I think it will go like this. The liquid model of the sun will be the trigger. Once the liquid model of the sun is accepted in science, or at least is being tolerated in science, then you will see more and more people wanting to flock towards that theory because now they're not risking their jobs anymore. Now they're not risking so much anymore to be an outcast in science. It's being tolerated. And that will be one of the most important points. From the moment the sun is being put into question, you will probably also see it in the media quite quickly, everywhere. People are beginning to question like, oh, is the sun really a liquid or a gas? What is going on here? But you will not immediately see whole cosmology being questioned. And then from the moment it's not just tolerated anymore, but it's really being more and more accepted in science, then you can expect more of a, a quick revolution. And I'm calling it, I'm expecting it to be a huge scientific revolution because it will not only uh, show 
something about cosmology, but it will show something about science in general. Mm. The way that we are performing science in the past seems to be unproductive for a big part. Of course, it is productive in a certain sense. But do you really think that this coincidence of having a wrong model of the sun, um, if it happens to be uh, proven at some point, that this is going to be an isolated instance? Right. I, I don't think so. And my impression also, beyond cosmology, is this is systemic. This is something that happens throughout science everywhere. The, the questioning of relativity theory as, as being like a kind of heresy, that's, that's not, a, not a coincidence. That's a systemic occurrence of the same phenomenon. People want you to accept narratives, follow the narratives, until it becomes acceptable to deviate from this narrative because it is hyped as a good thing. But the problem will be left with a, with a very, very, very difficult question and a very problematic one. And that is, how can we do it better? And especially um, in, in terms of embarrassing mistakes, what will have been in, in such a scenario, what will be the most embarrassing thing to admit? That you were working with a model which was wrong all the time, or that you were not allowing contrarian voices in your club of science, because that's what actually happened. If they adopt this theory, they also have to admit, or if they just tolerate this theory at some point, they will also have to admit that they made the mistake of trying to repress the voices which were voicing this theory. Yes. And that's, I think, something way more embarrassing than having been stuck with the wrong theory all the time, because that's something that people will, will easily dismiss as, you know, it happens all the time. That's the part of science. And that's, that's actually really beautiful because it means that with the revolution of the liquid sun, we might look forward to a revolution in the way that we do science as a whole, because it will be embarrassing so. and it, that will force us to reconsider the entire process as a whole. And so that's, that's I think a beautiful so. silver lining to the entire affair, despite how painful it is for Pierre. Um, I think we're all going to benefit from his pain at the end of the day. Thanks, Pierre. <laughs> Thank you, Pierre. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, Patrick, we, I, I want to keep talking to you more. We should definitely have you back on the podcast. It's a very fascinating topic, I have to agree. This is, I feel like we are at the... Um, it may be the biggest scientific, um, I, I will formulate it like this. The, the most important contributions in science this century may not be the establishment of new theories, but the destruction of old theories. Wow. Yeah. Well, you got to replace them with something. Yeah, but destroying is also useful. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the Godzilla of science. You got to clear that forest before you can plant your uh, 
wheat or whatever. That's true. But if you clear the forest before you have the wheat in hand to plant, you will erode your topsoil and things will go very bad. That's one of the other amazing things. I didn't even, I don't want to totally, I I don't want to get totally (laughs) sidetracked, but Pierre has done an amazing job, unlike many fringe uh, critics, in that he's not just saying that they're wrong. Mm, mm -hmm. He's saying they're wrong because they don't understand the material basis of it. And there is an explanation. And, and he does that. And that's extremely rare and awesome. And I think that he gets that fundamentally. Yeah, definitely. It's been really good, Patrick. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been really, really fun to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, let's, let's stay in touch. All right. Have a, great, have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Bye.